This business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I acknowledge that we have our nominees for the subsequent hearing before, uh, before us, so we'll just ask you to sit and uh, hold tight. Uh, today we'll be marking up three legislative items and voting on five Foreign Service Officer promotion lists. Uh, as you all know, today's business meeting will be followed immediately by a nominations hearing. Now, I have to make uh, some remarks about today's meetings. We were also set to vote on a number of nominations today, but unfortunately, we have another request to hold over the entire slate of nominees. This has now happened several times this Congress, with all of the requests coming from the same member of the minority. These holdovers are not a game. They can have serious and negative consequences for the State Department, for U.S. personnel, and for our constituents. Just look at two of the nominees uh, from today's list that were held over. Absent the holdover, we would have voted on Gentry Smith's nomination. Mr. Smith is the nominee to head the State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security. His nomination has been pending for over 90 days, and it will be further delayed due to this holdover. So I ask, why stop the person whose job it is to keep our people safe. We would have also voted on Rena Bitter, the nominee to be Assistant Secretary of Consular Affairs. Every one of us has constituents who are desperate to get passports and are frustrated by the enormous backlog at the State Department. Ms. Bitter is a proven leader and committed to focusing like a laser on eliminating the backlog. She has been pending in the committee for over 90 days. But she will have to wait longer due to the holdover, and as a result, our constituents will likely have to wait longer as well. For decades, members of this committee have used holdovers sparingly and overall responsibly, generally when they have a question that needs to be answered or they need a little more time to engage on the nominee. These constant and blanket holdovers are unprecedented and, in my view, unjustified in this committee. No member of this committee has weaponized the holdover as has happened today and over the last several months. As chairman, I've returned the committee to operating under comedy. That means that the ranking member has cleared every item on every markup agenda, including all nominees. Given the extensive minority input, input that often, uh, you know, understandably slows the process on the front end, it is clear that these holdovers serve no purpose other than delay. They're bad for the country, they're bad for our constituents, and they are testing the bounds of comedy. We now have almost 30 nominees pending in the committee with completed files, and we will likely have more than 50 nominees pending by the end of the August recess. Um, and so I am, uh, well, it takes some hard work, but I uh, am looking forward uh, to working with the ranking member who has been, uh, I must say, very cooperative and helpful in this regard uh, in trying to get uh, more nominees up before the committee and hopefully to the floor uh, before the recess. Now let me turn to the legislative items on our agenda. We have before us today uh, S-2297, the International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act, S-812, a bill championing uh, Taiwan's observer status in the World Health Organization, and S-Res 310, a resolution expressing solidarity with Cuban citizens and condemning the Cuban regime's latest acts of repression. 
I'm pleased that we'll be marking up S-2297, the International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act. Senator Risch and I agreed to collaborate on this bill a few months ago, and today we have before us a bipartisan global health bill that includes a number of important measures to both enhance current COVID-19 response efforts and to ensure that we are better prepared for the next pandemic, whenever it may occur. COVID-19 is continuing to rage in many countries around the world. Most recently, as the Delta variant is showing us, the, the novel coronavirus continues to pose a threat to American lives and livelihoods as long as it persists anywhere in the world. And as we have learned from the pandemic, this dark chapter in which we have lost so many lives, only with better planning and better preparation here in the United States and around the world can we protect ourselves, our communities, and future generations from emerging pathogens. So I want to thank Senator Risch and his staff for their work on this bill and the dedication to this critical issue. It's one of the issues the ranking member has made a central one with me, and I'm glad that his name uh, goes first on the bill. We'll also be considering S-812, which I introduced with Senator Inhofe in support of Taiwan's observer status in the World Health Organization. Efforts by the People's Republic of China to block Taiwan from gaining observer status at the World Health Assembly are narrow-minded and endanger the international community, particularly as we work to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. This bill makes clear that the United States must do more to champion Taiwan's engagement in the international community and particularly at the World Health Organization at this time. Finally, we'll be marking up SRES 310, which I introduced along with Senators Rubio, Risch, Kane, Cardin, and several other members to demonstrate our bipartisan support for the Cuban people. At a time when the Diaz-Canal regime is desperately unleashing a campaign of violence, human rights abuses, and forced disappearances against the Cuban people, we must make sure that U.S. actions are aimed solely helping the Cuban people and holding the regime to account for its brutality. This is a bicameral, bipartisan resolution that shows the United States Congress is united in its unflinching support for Cubans' fundamental human and social rights. We are speaking in honor and admiration of the work being carried on by brave freedom fighters in Cuba, and we are making a solemn promise not to ignore the suffering and subjugation of the Cuban people as they inch closer to realizing a future of freedom and prosperity. I look forward to support the strong support on this and the other two legislative items before that. And with that, let me recognize uh, the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, this bill, as you uh, pointed out, has been a long time uh, in coming. Uh, I started the first draft of this uh, very, very early on uh, in the pandemic when it became obvious that the world really was not equipped uh, to deal with this. We had the World Health Organization that all of us thought uh, would be the appropriate way to respond to this. But this, this pandemic was different. Uh, the WHO had done uh, very good work uh, in uh, helping with PEPFAR and the AIDS epidemic. Uh, it did very good work on polio. It did very good work on smallpox. But um, it was pretty evident right from the beginning that uh, uh, they just weren't respond. They weren't prepared to respond to something that was moving as quickly as this was. So as I started to, to draft this, uh, I went back and forth on a lot of different provisions. And, and as most of us would recall, it was pretty political right at the beginning. And uh, the then president weighed in on the WHO, and that uh, uh, raised uh, that uh, political that raised that issue to a political level that uh, made it uh, somewhat difficult to deal with. 
I want to thank Senator Murphy. I had the first conversation with him uh, in which he didn't discourage me, but it was a spirited conversation uh, as to which direction we should go with this. And uh, I, I kept an open mind throughout as to how we should do this. Uh, then, of course, uh, uh, we've, we've struggled uh, to put a bill together that would be a strong bipartisan bill. This has to be a, a bipartisan, uh, something of, of this magnitude. Uh, indeed, it is of the magnitude that uh, at some point in world history, it may be the most important thing that uh, everyone on this uh, committee had done, because this is going to happen again. There's absolutely no question this is going to happen again. And how we respond to it is going to be very important. Uh, after the, the chair changed, uh, uh, Senator Menendez was uh, kind enough to uh, lend his uh, ear to this and his uh, uh, good graces. And uh, we uh, uh, set about, uh, again, resetting the bill and getting it on a, on a bipartisan track that could accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And what we wanted to accomplish, the object was not rocket science. It was very simple. And that is to have an organization that acted as a fire department, that when the house caught fire, somebody was there to answer the phone and respond. That, that was the, the model I set up for this at, at the very beginning. And I'm pleased to say that I think, uh, I think we've reached that. And I, uh, I, I want to thank every member of this committee, whether you vote for the bill or against the bill. Everybody's had thoughts about it. They've had input into it. And people have been very generous in, in a give and take. Yeah, obviously, the, like every bill, particularly one of this magnitude that passes Congress, uh, there isn't one of us here that would vote uh, for every provision standalone, but uh, together I think it uh, does do what, uh, what is an important uh, thing for this Congress to do. Uh, we, we are leading the world on this. Uh, uh, the world looks for this. As I talk to people, as all of you do on this committee from all over the, the world, they, they all agree that there needs to be a different way of responding than the way responded to this. And so uh, uh, this is important in that regard. This bill elevates the global health as a national security imperative. Uh, we know that that's been around for some time as uh, when we look at the world threats uh, on the Intelligence Committee every year, uh, uh, pandemic has always been one of those threats. It's, it's been given kind of short shrift because we haven't had it, but uh, it's been on there. This bill enables more effective diplomatic engagement and program coordination, builds upon the success of other models of effective foreign aid, PEPFAR and the Millennium Challenge Corporation, to ensure that those are examples, to ensure uh, transparency, accountability, self-reliance, and results. Uh, we stole every good idea we could from those uh, other models that have been used before. It promotes burden sharing and partnerships through an innovative financing mechanism which incentivizes eligible countries to more effectively identify threats and invest in uh, their own health security and authorizes funds to carry out a strategic plan uh, with clearly defined roles and responsibilities to help uh, countries close the gaps in health security that keep us all vulnerable, uh, uh, that keep us all vulnerable to pandemic threats. We all know what happens there affects us here. Uh, that, that has become so obvious and apparent uh, over the last uh, uh, 20 months. I want to thank the chairman and, uh, and our other co-sponsors, Senator Murphy and Senator Portman, for their important contributions. And again, I want to reiterate every member of this committee who participated in this in one way or another. Uh, on the Cuba resolutions and the Taiwan bill, I want to associate myself with the chairman's remarks. And uh, with that, uh, I'll yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch.
Without objection, we'll now consider and block five foreign service officer promotion lists and two legislative items. They are uh, PN 359, PN 477, PN 478, PN 724, PN 727, S 812, and S Resolution 310 as amended by the Manager's Resolving Clause Amendments. Uh, would any members like to comment on any of these items before the vote? If not, is there a motion to approve these items and block with a resolution as amended by the notice amendment I just referenced? So moved. So moved. Is there a second? Second. So moved and second. The question is on the motion to approve the items as amended. All in favor will say aye. 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 All those opposed will say no. The ayes have it. And the majority of members having voted in the affirmative, the ayes have it. And the items as amended are agreed to. Uh, without objection, we'll now consider S-2297. The International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act. Is there a motion to approve the substitute amendment? I'll, I'll move, Mr. Chair. There is so moved. Is there a second? Is there a second to approve the substitute amendment? Senator Cardin. Thank you for, thank you for the enthusiasm. Senator Cardin is very gracious. I so moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the substitute amendment. All those in favor will say aye. 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 All those opposed will say no. Majority of members having uh, present, having voted in the affirmative, the ayes have it, and the amendment is agreed to. Uh, at this point, I just want to um, very briefly just say uh, uh, we are proud of the work that this bill has. I'm pleased that the manager's amendment that we just uh, uh, voted to include, includes numerous contributions from our colleagues, including Senators Cardin, Coons, Murphy, Markey, Merkley, Schatz, Van Hollen, Rubio, Paul, Portman, and Senator Haggerty, and I urge my colleagues to support this bill. Are there any amendments uh, to this legislation? S Senator Paul. My amendment would uh, reduce foreign aid by 10%. Foreign aid welfare has been increasing at a rapid rate, over nearly 70% increase over the past decade. Meanwhile, our overall debt approaches $30 trillion. I think it's time we reconsider paving roads overseas and consider paving roads here at home. The author, uh, Dr. M.G. Quabria, in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs writes, the history of foreign aid has been inextricably linked with corruption. He quotes Dambisa Mayo, who has a book called Dead Aid, that argues that the root cause of much of the development affliction of Africa can be traced to the large inflow of foreign aid that generates a cycle of corruption that results in slower growth and poverty. All of us have seen the stories where aid has come in and destroyed local markets and destroyed local farmers, but this is not the exception but the rule. Former UN Secretary uh, Ban Ki-moon says that corruption devours about 30% of all development assistant money or aid. If you give more aid, you'll get more corruption. If you give less aid, maybe you'll get less corruption. The Mubarak family is a great example of the corruption of foreign aid. Over a couple of decade period, they got somewhere around 30 to $40 billion. They managed to steal about half of it. Uh, the elder Mubarak was estimated to be worth between 15 and 20 billion. Even his kids were estimated to be worth about 5 billion each. This is the history of foreign aid. It's a history of corruption. It's a history of money going from poor people in rich countries to rich people in poor countries. 
and I think we should uh, consider reducing foreign aid by 10%, and I would ask for a recorded vote. Is there any senator wishing to be recognized on this amendment? Well, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rich. Well, Mr. Chairman, I'm, I'm going to vote no on this amendment. I, I think, first of all, Senator, senator Paul's to be commended. He's been uh, a tireless advocate to uh, review not just foreign aid assistance, but uh, the entire U.S. budget. There is absolutely no doubt uh, that there are things in here that need to be uh, reviewed, that need to be cut out, uh, that need to have sideboards on them, that need to be uh, followed more closely. I think, though, that uh, an across-the-board 10% cut is not the way to do this. I think it's, uh, it needs to be taken on on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. But I, I share his concern. I, I, I share his... Uh, view on the waste and corruption, but I'm going to vote no on, on this amendment. Any other member seeking recognition? Very briefly, this amendment caps the fiscal year 22 appropriations for foreign assistance at a specific amount, 10% below FY21 appropriations across all foreign assistance programs. With the pandemic surging here at home, thanks in part to the Delta variant, this amendment would reduce U.S. support for global efforts to combat COVID-19. And if we retreat in this regard, China will fill the void we create. I commend the senator for his uh, com constant commitment to making sure U.S. taxpayer dollars are used in the most effective way. But I, I cannot support the, this amendment. Uh, the gentleman, the senator, has asked for a recorded vote. The clerk will call the roll. No. No. Mr. Rubio? No. Mr. Johnson? Aye. Mr. Romney? No. Mr. Portman? No by proxy. No by proxy. Mr. Paul? Aye. Mr. Young? No by proxy. No by proxy. Mr. Barraza? Aye. Mr. Cruz? Aye. Mr. Round? No by proxy. No by proxy. Mr. Haggerty? No by proxy. Mr. Chairman? No. The clerk will report. Mr. Chairman, the yeas are four, the nays are eighteen. And the amendment uh, uh, is not agreed to. Uh, Senator Cardin, I understand you had recognition. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, I had an amendment that dealt with Section 107. I'm not going to uh, offer that amendment, but I do want to raise the issue. And first, let me thank uh, the Chairman and Ranking Member, uh, particularly Senator Risch, for all your efforts in trying to reach out and work with all of us on this particular bill. I thank you for the input uh, of allowing some of our issues that we raised to be included in the manager's package. I still have a concern on Section 107, and let me express it because I hope we can work this out as the bill works its way through uh, the United States Senate. Section 107 says governments using the COVID-19 pandemic as a pretense for repression have undermined democratic institutions, debilitated institutions for transparency and public integrity, quashed legitimate dissent, and attacked journalists, civil society, organization activists, independent voices, and vulnerable and marginalized populations, including refugees and migrants, with far-reaching consequences that will extend beyond the current crisis. That's absolutely accurate. And we have to deal with that. And I applaud you for including that section in the bill. It's very important that we do it. You then go on to say that uh, program priorities, including programs to support uh, that 
including programs that support democratic institutions, human rights defenders, civil societies, and freedom of the press, should be targeted to the extent feasible toward civil societies organizations in countries in which emergency government measures taken in response to COVID-19 pandemic have violated internationally recognized human rights. My problem with that section is I certainly want to fund this, but I don't want to take money away from programs that are currently underfunded that are targeting the development of democratic institutions and dealing with problems that we have. Uh, I've raised several times that we are not appropriating enough of the foreign assistance programs for good governance, anti-corruption, to deal with the decline of democratic states. And I'm concerned that this language could be interpreted to take money away from that program. Now, I know we have the distinguished chairman of the subcommittee, uh, the, the senator from Delaware, that's on our committee, and I'm sure he will protect that during the appropriation process. But I just really want to raise the issue that we don't take money away from programs that are already underfunded to meet this very desperate need. I would have been more comfortable if we would have authorized additional funds for this purpose, which I think we should have. And I look forward to working with the chairman and ranking members as, the, uh, as this bill goes forward. And I will not press my amendment. Well, thank you, Senator Cardin. Respond briefly. Uh, first of all, I, I think that's a legitimate concern that you have. Um, I, uh, we have gone back and forth on funding on this bill uh, to a large degree and settled down what I think is a is an appropriate number, but that that number is is written on paper for this year. It is not written on stone. There is no doubt in my mind that if we wind up with another one of these pandemics, that the money we're talking about here is peanuts compared to what we will wind up spending, just like this pandemic is. My idea is, is I really think this institution will do better if we don't throw a whole bunch of money at it at the beginning that they're trying to spend when they're not really prepared to spend it. It's my idea that this thing get up, get running, we take the training wheels off next year, and then we keep uh, going forward. But I, I fully intend, and I assume other members of this committee are in the same position, and, and that is we're gonna be looking over the shoulder of this. We're, we're going to be watching uh, what this organization does as a new organization because it's newness is, uh, as everyone knows, can cause real difficulties sometimes. So I agree with you, but I, I think uh, we, we, I intend to do, I, I hope to join you in future years as we go forward. Mr. Chairman, if I could just respond very briefly. The, the concern is we're dealing with the general fund foreign aid appropriations that go for democracy institutions. In the American Rescue Plan, there's some funds available, and you've dealt with that in a different section, which I think you've handled the right way. I am concerned about the future appropriations being compromised uh, because there's just not enough funds available for this purpose. Where I want to see this purpose funded, I think we should be looking at how much additional funds are needed or how we reallocate funds in order to meet all these priorities. That's the only reason I raise this. It, it shouldn't be put ahead of other priorities that are currently being funded that are, in my view, underfunded. Thank you. Uh, I First of all, I appreciate the senator withholding his amendment. Secondly, uh, if the effect of the language would create the result that the senator is concerned about, then I would share his concern. And we look forward to working with you as we move to the floor to refine it. Any other senators wishing to offer an amendment or recognition? Senator uh, Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Very quickly, let me thank you for your leadership uh, along with Senator Risch, no small thing to make this substantial bill 
uh, bipartisan. I appreciate your willingness to work with all of us. In particular, uh, I want to draw our attention to Section 3 of this bill, which sets up some new creative financing mechanisms. This comes from legislation Senator Rich and I uh, had developed last year, modeled after the Millennium Challenge Corporation, public-private partnerships, um, working with individual nations to use U.S. dollars in order to leverage domestic policy changes, which can strengthen local public health systems. I think that's a smart usage of U.S. taxpayer funds. Um, I did uh, a couple of amendments I'd offered are in the manager's package, and thank you for that. There did have an amendment relative to um, funding for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness that I won't call up, um, but uh, it is really important that the United States make a substantial contribution to CEPI. Um, I know only half of us voted for the um, American Rescue Plan, but in that bill, I think it was commonly understood that there was uh, an amount of money set aside for this organization. Um, we, um, we were very fortunate this time around that it was uh, American companies that were able to develop vaccines that right now are saving lives all across the country and the world. CEPI, though, is an international organization that works both in a public and private sector manner to develop vaccines. And it may be the next pandemic comes with a vaccine that is developed through that international group, and the United States should be a substantial player there just to make sure that if we don't develop the vaccine, if the international group does, um, that we have a seat uh, at the table. Uh, and so uh, I look forward to working with the chair and the ranking member on continuing to make sure that we have an adequate contribution, that we are at the table uh, on CEPI's uh, work. And uh, at this time, I won't call for an amendment requiring that contribution to be made, uh, but I look forward to working with uh, folks on that project. I thank the senator for withholding yes, his amendment, and uh, we look forward to working with you. Uh, I, I, share, I share your views on CEPI. Uh, senator Rich. Very briefly, I, I thank you, Senator Murphy, for withdrawing that. I, I think CEPI is going to be a player in this no matter what, and how it works with this new organization will be important. I think we're going to continue to review that as we go down the pike. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz seeks recognition. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I call up Cruz First Degree 2. Uh, this is an amendment that would prohibit U.S. participation in the creation of a vaccine passport. Uh, and let me say, I think there are a lot of Texans, I think there are a lot of Americans across the country that are very frustrated at the government responses to COVID-19. And I think the decision yesterday by the CDC to reverse its guidance and to mandate masks for vaccinated people is the kind of decision that is infuriating people across this country. I believe the CDC's decision yesterday was politics. It wasn't science. It was a decision that somehow pretends vaccines don't work. The CDC months ago rightly concluded that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks because the whole purpose of a vaccine is not to get the disease. That decision was right. The science hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is the politics. A year and a half ago, the CDC was one of, if not the most respected scientific and medical organization in the country. Today, the credibility of the CDC is in tatters because leadership of the CDC has been willing to allow science to become politicized. We've seen Dr. Fauci take virtually every position on virtually every subject 
under the sun. We've seen Dr. Fauci in his emails explain his view that masks don't work and are not effective in preventing COVID-19. We've then seen Dr. Fauci change his positions over and over again. We've seen Dr. Fauci say that when he told people masks didn't work, he actually believed masks did work, but he wanted people not to wear masks because he wanted first responders to have them first. I believe that when government scientists and health experts allow politics to trump the science, it does enormous damage to the willingness of the American people to believe anything they have to say. I think one of the aspects of yesterday's decision that illustrates the arbitrariness of this is the brand new decree that everyone in schools must wear a mask. Doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not, if you enter a school, you must wear a mask. Now, there's no great new scientific discovery that mandates this new edict. Indeed, we've seen throughout this crisis that while COVID-19 can be very, very serious for vulnerable po uh, populations, for the very elderly, for those with significant comorbidities, that we've seen the incidence of serious disease with COVID-19 among children is very, very low. And there's no credible demonstration that children are, are a significant vector for spreading the disease. But CDC nonetheless said anyone who steps in a, in a school must be masked. It's not complicated why. They did so because the teacher union bosses demanded that. That is a political decision. Political players can make political decisions. It wouldn't surprise me to see elected officials deciding I'm going to give the union bosses what they demand, but that is not what the Center for Disease Control should be doing. My view on COVID is it is serious. We should take serious steps to combat it. We have taken extraordinary steps to combat COVID-19, including an unprecedented effort to develop vaccines, hundreds of millions of which have been administered, as we've come together and fought against this disease. But we've also seen stupid policies. We've seen lockdowns across this country that have shut down small businesses, destroyed restaurants, destroyed bars, destroyed, destroyed generational businesses. We've seen schools shut down. Tens of millions of children sent home for over a year. Children who are falling behind academically, who are falling behind in reading, who are falling behind in math. And the children being hurt are disproportionately low income. They are disproportionately Hispanic and African American. And nonetheless, the edicts to shut down schools have continued. They were utterly unjustifiable. My view is simple. We should not have mandates. What does that mean? That means no mask mandates. That means no vaccine mandates. And I will say, you know, it was interesting as I was reading through this COVID bill, Section 107, talking about what foreign governments are doing. An awful lot of the description of foreign governments can, can apply to our own government. So Section 107 of this bill says, certain foreign governments have taken measures in response to COVID-19 that violate the human rights of their citizens without clear public health justification. Well, I think you could delete the word foreign in that because we've seen governments here domestically arbitrarily exercising power as well. This Section 107 also says governments using the COVID-19 pandemic as a pretext for repression 
have undermined democratic institutions, check. Debilitated institutions for transparency and public integrity, check. Quashed legitimate dissent. I might remind you that Anthony Fauci in those emails asked Facebook to silence anyone who said anything different than the government directive on speech, including if you suggested the origin of the Wuhan virus was actually at Wuhan, China, in a Chinese government lab. And Facebook willingly complied, censored that view. You're not allowed to have that view that this escaped from the government lab. Then, miraculously, a couple of months ago, the administration was forced to recognize, well, yeah, there's actually very significant evidence that the Wuhan virus escaped from a Chinese government lab in Wuhan. And beyond that, that it may well have been developed with government research with American taxpayer funding on gain-of-function research. Those views that were banned for a year are now acknowledged as having very significant scientific basis behind them. My view, there should be no mandates, no mask mandates, no vaccine mandates, and no vaccine passports. And what my amendment focuses on is just the last piece of it, vaccine passports. And I will say, finally, this should be a proposition that is bipartisan. The Biden administration at least claims to oppose vaccine passports. Jen Psaki at the White House said, let me be clear on this. I know there's a lot of questions. Psaki said, the government is not now, nor will we be, supporting a system that requires Americans to carry a credential. If that is right, if that is credible, then I would urge the committee to adopt my amendment prohibiting U.S. taxpayer funds from going to or the American government participating in an international body creating a vaccine passport that would be required for Americans traveling abroad. I have a number of questions and concerns about the substance of this amendment. However, the text of this amendment is clearly outside the scope of the Foreign Relations Committee's jurisdiction. Indeed, the text is drawn directly from S-1932, a bill sponsored by the senator from Texas that has been referred to the HELP Committee. This amendment prohibits the use of federal funds for the creation of a vaccine passport system or vaccine track tracking database, including at the state level, and it requires that COVID-19 vaccination records be destroyed by all federal departments and agencies. Neither of these issues fall within our committee's jurisdiction. Accordingly, I rule this amendment out of order. Mr. Chair. Mr. Chairman. Senator from Texas. Mr. Chairman, I think that jurisdictional argument is uh, not justifiable based on the underlying bill. Uh, the underlying bill is about policies engaging in a bilateral basis in response to COVID. This amendment is prohibiting participating in an international organization creating a vaccine passport. This bill talks about vaccine monitoring. Uh, and this amendment set ensures that we're not establishing a federal government vaccine database that is monitoring U.S. citizens in violation of their privacy rights. This bill talks about enhancing transparency of health data, and, and I think the amendment would protect the privacy of health data uh, from a vaccine passport. Uh, and this bill also talks about establishing partnerships with the private sector to improve pandemic preparedness and response. Uh, this amendment addresses the same topic, to prevent the U.S. government from working with a third party in the private sector to develop a vaccine passport and force it on the American people. And so accordingly, I, I appeal the ruling of the chair that the amendment is out of order. 
Senator appears the ruling of the chair that the amendment is not in order because it is outside of this committee's jurisdiction. The question for the committee is, shall the decision of the chair be overturned? A yes vote means you wish to follow the, uh, to allow the amendment. A no vote means you agree with the chair that the amendment should not be allowed. As such, I will vote no. Mr. Chairman. The Senator Risch is recognized and Senator Shaheen. Well, Mr. Chairman, I'm likewise, I'm going to uh, support the ruling of the chair. I, uh, first of all, Senator Cruz's makes a passionate and legitimate case about some very clear domestic issues that we're wrestling with. I think every state is wrestling with them. My state's having the same arguments about vaccinations, about uh, uh, about uh, passports, about masks, and everything else. But this is an, a bill dealing with the international create the the creation of an international institution for dealing with these things. It in no way requires the United States or any state or any locality to uh, uh, follow any regulations that are adopted in, the international, in an international forum. Uh, it, uh, it really, if we're going to get this thing passed, it needs to have bipartisan support of the general proposition that we have here. If we get down into uh, dealing with these that really are, as the chairman points out, taking a lighter touch than some of the other states. The highest death rate in the world is New Jersey and New York. States with the heaviest touch in the entire world, New Jersey and New York have the highest death rates. By far, no one's going to exceed them. As far as the facts of the Delta virus, the Delta variant, Public Health England looked at 92,000 people who got the Delta variant. Many, many articles have shown it to be more transmissible. I don't think anybody disputes that. But when you look at the death rate of the Delta variant, both vaccinated folks and unvaccinated folks who died from it, the death rate was a great deal lower than the wild variant. For those who were vaccinated and over 40, no, over 50, the death rate was about 1.4%. For those over 50 who were unvaccinated, it was about 3.4%. This is much lower than the wild variant. The wild variant above 50 was about a 5 to 6% death rate for all comers last year. So there is a number, there's a great deal of evidence, but when one side presumes that you know the truth and that, oh, everything says that the Delta variant's more deadly, no, there are facts that on both sides you can argue what science you see and what we see, but the real danger in our country is people presuming to know the truth and calling other senators misinformation, and I presume this would be the, this would be the argument, well, why don't we shut down Ted Cruz? Why don't we not let him speak at all? That's what's going on in our country. That, it's not your time. When it's your time, you can have your time back. It's not your time to interrupt. But here's the point. The point is, is this is going on across America. There are people on your side of the aisle introducing legislation to tell Facebook that my opinion cannot and should not be heard. I quote from scientific literature every day, and you can disagree with it, but the thing is, your side is wanting to take down the argument and have your way imprinted on the American mind with no objection. That goes against everything with regard to free speech that we know of in our country. The, the chair. chair will remind members that when they have their time, it's their time, and corrections can be made subsequently. I will take the opportunity to correct the senator with reference to New Jersey. At the height of the pandemic, yes, we did have a high death rate. But now, as a result of vaccinations, where nearly 60% of the population is vaccinated, 
We have the lowest of any place in the nation. We have the lowest transmission rate, even though we are now facing the challenge of the Delta variants. So everything has to be put in the appropriate context. Um, Senator Kane uh, is uh, asked for recognition. I'll get back to you. Yep. Th thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm, I'm going to be brief. Um, I also wanted to make a quick correction of Senator Cruz to, to go to the point Senator Shaheen mentioned. This isn't about shutting off debate or keeping people from expressing their opinions, but Senator Cruz, at the beginning of his comment, I don't have the court reporter's transcript ahead of me, but he said that the CDC action yesterday to recommend mask wearing, the only thing that had changed was politics. That was what he said. The only thing that justified the CDC's guidance was politics, and that's frankly ridiculous. It's ridiculous because in your comment, you, you never said anything about the Delta variant. You never said anything about the rising caseload in Texas and Virginia and everywhere. You didn't acknowledge that the Texas Department of State Health Services before the CDC is still recommending that people wear masks because of the Delta variant. You can have opinions about the potency of the Delta variant. We can debate those. But when you say that the CDC action yesterday was based purely on politics, and was unrelated to the surge in the Delta variant that is hospitalizing people at near record numbers and killing far too many Americans, I just worry about folks who are watching a hearing like this when they think that their representatives of government are trashing the institutions of government and asserting that they're only acting by politics we're in the middle of when we are in the middle of such a challenging spike in the pandemic the, the effect of those comments is to weaken people's belief in the institutions of this country. And these institutions aren't perfect because humans aren't perfect. But I've lived in a military dictatorship. I've seen how other people live, and I just don't feel that we should be needlessly trashing our health agencies as they're trying to recommend in a difficult circumstance ways for people to be safe. This isn't about politics, what the CDC did yesterday. Just as the Texas State Health Department's recommendation, which, like the CDC's, is not a mandate. It's a recommendation about how people should stay safe. We're just trying to do the very best we can to keep people safe, and I don't know why folks would want to undermine that. Senator Johnson. Mr. Chairman, I just have to push back when we hear accusations from the other side that Republicans have politicized COVID. I mean, go, go back to March, April, May, June of 2020. Who was politicizing COVID? It's the current president and vice president in their campaign that expressed skepticism over a Trump vaccine. So I can't stand by and let the other side accuse Republicans of politicizing COVID. It's been your side that has done that. And you did it, and you won a campaign. You won the presidency. Congratulations. Now. My point with the agencies is they have not been forthright. Now, I, I listened to uh, Jen Psaki yesterday. Well, it's all based on that. Okay, show us the data. Be transparent. There is a law on the books that says if five members of the Homeland Security Committee, which I formally chaired, sign an oversight request, the agencies shall. Not, hey, would you kind of maybe do it? they shall turn over, the, turn over the information. We have five members of the Homeland Security Committee asking the 
Health and Human Services uh, Department to turn over the emails from Anthony Fauci unredacted. Unredacted. What we got yesterday was the 4,000 pages of redacted emails. The agencies are not being transparent, and I would argue that that is the reason you're seeing people hesitant. It's not vaccine hesitancy. I held an event in Wisconsin on June 28th with five women and a 13-year-old girl who believed they were vaccine injured. The CDC, NIH, the, the vaccine manufacturers are ignoring these people. They are casting them aside. They just, they just want to be seen, they want to be heard, they want to be believed, so that somebody might just acknowledge that maybe it's the vaccine that was the problem, so they can get effective treatment. Where, where's the ounce of sympathy for, for the truth? So again, we want transparency, we want data. It's not our side that's politicized this, it's the Democrats that have politicized this. I'm getting tired of hearing the, the false accusations coming from the other side. I'm getting sick of being attacked for just asking legitimate questions. You know, as, as long as I've been alive, when it comes to health matters, it's always been stated, get a second opinion. I don't know when all of a sudden the CDC, NIH, and the FDA have become the gods of information and we should never question their considered judgment. There's plenty of other people who have different views. Those views should be respected and they should be allowed to be aired. And I totally agree with Senator Cruz. I'm completely opposed to mandates and passports. This, we've given up enough freedom during this pandemic. It's time for Americans to reclaim their freedom. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. Uh, Senator Cruz seeks recognition, and then I'm going to call the question. We've had a robust discussion on this. After, after Senator Cruz, Senator Rich will have an intervention, then we'll have a vote. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen impugned my integrity, and she claimed falsely that I was somehow suggesting vaccines are not effective. That was an absolute falsehood. Whether it was deliberate or not, I won't speculate. But it is precisely the opposite of what I was saying and have been saying. Vaccines are effective. I've been vaccinated. My wife has been vaccinated. My parents have been vaccinated. My wife's parents have been vaccinated. I've been urging Americans to get vaccinated. But I also believe in individual liberty. I believe in freedom. It's your damn choice whether you get vaccinated. I think it made sense for me in consultation with my doctor, but you have the ability to make your choice. And the irony is, it is the Biden administration that is doing what Senator Shaheen accused me of doing. When, when they put out, the CDC puts out this rule, even if you've been vaccinated, you got to put a mask on. It is the Biden administration that are telling people vaccines don't work. I actually understand vaccines do work, which is why that is an arbitrary rule to require people who have been vaccinated to put a mask on. And by the way, we see the Kabuki Theater here. Everyone here has been vaccinated. As soon as the CDC said that, we saw Democrats putting on masks. Not because the vaccine suddenly stopped working yesterday, but it was working two days ago. No, because now it is a virtue signal of submissiveness to wear a mask. I would note none of the Democrats who spoke said one word about my point of the arbitrary demand 
that everyone in a school wear masks, even though kids have not gotten, by and large, seriously ill or been a provable vector for spreading this disease in significant amounts. This was done because the teachers' unions, the union bosses demanded it politically. But Senator Shaheen also said that, that our constituents deserve clarity. I, I agree with that. Um, she described how, how happy and eager she was when, when schools required kids to get vaccinated. And you're right, there are vaccine requirements, there are different diseases, and each state can determine what is required concerning vaccines. So in the interest of clarity, I, I would just ask Senator Shaheen, do you believe there should be a vaccine mandate for COVID-19? And do you believe the government should issue or participate in a vaccine passport? I answer those unequivocally no. And I would ask Senator Shaheen to have the same transparency. Do you support a vaccine mandate for COVID-19? Do you support a vaccine passport? Has expired, Senator Risch. Well, Mr. Chairman, I, you know, I'm, I'm right back to where I started on this thing. Um, the very first time I sat down to, to, on the draft of this bill, President Trump had just announced that uh, he had no confidence in the WHO, et cetera, et cetera. It became incredibly political and heated, just as this has become. This bill has nothing to do with mandatory vaccinations. It has nothing to do with the government collecting information on people. And with all due respect to my good friend from Texas, I would respectfully ask that we keep that out of this bill. This is to create an agency, an international agency, that will respond differently and better than the WHO responded. <clears throat> We've tried to keep the politics out of this. I, I think the issues that you've raised are absolutely legitimate issues, issues that uh, should be taken up on a, on a bill that actually deals with that. Uh, this bill does not, and indeed under the Rule 15 of the Senate, I, I have to agree with the chairman that it just, it, uh, it, it's not appropriate for this bill. We need to get, uh, I would plead with people to focus on what this bill does and what important thing we're doing here for the world if we get another one of these pandemics. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, look, I think we all believe in liberty. We all believe in freedom. But my freedom to live when it clashes against those who ultimately uh, choose not to get vaccinated and to put my life and the life of my constituents and the life of my family at risk, that's a clash there of our individual freedoms. Uh, the reason for the CDC's announcement is not that vaccines don't work. It's that the Delta variant can be carried even by the vaccinated. And if you care about your fellow man, as the Bible teaches us, then ultimately you would choose to wear a mask so that you mitigate the possibility of infecting your fellow man. That's, that's what the mandate, uh, that's what the, not the mandate, the recommendation is all about. But in any event, I will remind uh, our Colleagues, the question for the committee is, shall the decision of the chair be overturned? A yes vote means you wish to allow the amendment. A no vote means you agree with the chair that the amendment should not be overturned, uh, should not be allowed. As such, I will vote no. All those in favor who say aye uh, will, uh, in essence, say they, they wish the amendment to proceed. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I ask for a recorded vote. The, the, the recorded vote is requested. Uh, the clerk 
will call the roll. No by proxy. No. The clerk will report. The decision of the chair is not overturned. The amendment is not in order on the committee. Is there anyone else seeking recognition? Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And I want to go to a completely different part of this, which is whether we're being ambitious enough in this, in this bill. I'd like to enter in the record a letter from 60 health and uh, advocacy organizations uh, that uh, is um, addressed to President Biden, and we've been provided with copies here in Congress. And they lay out the vision that I think is consistent with this bill, that we need to aggressively help the world take on this disease, that we have a huge stake from a humanitarian perspective, we have a huge stake from an economic perspective, and we certainly have a huge stake from our own healthcare perspective, because as long as the disease is raging around the world, it's going to be returning to the U.S. in all kinds of ways and affecting uh, us here, including our health and our economy. These groups laid out a, a vision that I put into my first degree amendment number three, which I will not ask for a vote on, but I want to make the point that they're saying. They're saying for us to be able to have a significant impact on this disease around the world, it will take about a $25 billion investment, and furthermore, uh, distribution expenses uh, title add up to not another nine billion, and uh, so they suggest a a um, investment of thirty four billion dollars. And I'm glad we've increased the number from three to five billion dollars in this bill. But I want to point out that I haven't found any analysis that shows that one billion dollars per year over the next five years as at all adequate to the incredible challenge before us. I do appreciate that two of the points made by these groups have been adopted notionally into the bill. One is that we have to support the establishment of regional manufacturing hubs around the globe. And second, that we need to facilitate technology sharing and licensing of intellectual property necessary to ensure adequate and timely supply of vaccines and vaccine components. So these two ideas are incorporated into the bill, but it's, but it's going to take a lot more resources. Think about where we are right now, and that is 
that only 1.1% of, of individuals in low-income countries have received a single dose, meaning almost 98% have received no doses at all. The, the current strategy, we will not reach widespread vaccination until 2024. That means years of this disease raging around the world and returning to the United States of America. Even this process uh, is one in which, um, well, this process is one in which we have a big stake. And this bill, philosophically, is on the right track, but I need to emphasize that we're going to have to think much more boldly, much more aggressively, if we're going to tackle this challenge. And that the United States is really the country that has the influence, the ability to lead the world in this effort. And thus, we should ponder it in that context, that no other country is going to step forward and lay out the vision to aggressively do this. This bill lays out a vision. We need to put a lot more horsepower behind it if we're going to fulfill that vision. Without objection, the Senator's request for letters will be included in the record. Appreciate the Senator's views. And we look forward to working with you in the appropriation and other process uh, to have a robust, as robust a presence as possible. I'm going to observe the five-minute rule uh, for any other comments and amendments in order that we have a panel that's been waiting before us. We have colleagues who are waiting to introduce them. Is there anyone else seeking recognition or to offer an amendment? If not, is there a motion to approve S-2297 as amended? So moved by Senator Rich. Is there a second? Second is Senator by Senator Cardin. The quest is on the motion to approve S-2297 as amended. All those in favor will say aye. Aye. All those opposed will say no. No. The ayes have it, and the legislation is agreed to. Um, with that, uh, the resolution is agreed to. That, that completes the committee's business. I ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical conforming changes without objection so ordered. With that, the committee will stand, uh, will stand adjourned. We will reconvene uh, for today's nominations hearing. We never talked about it. This hearing of the, no, uh, of the nominations hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We're here today to consider nominations for four very important positions. Secretary, former Senator Ken Salazar to be Ambassador to Mexico, Ms. Jessica Lewis to be Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, Ambassador Donald Liu to be the Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs, and Ms. Marcela Escobari to be an Assistant Administrator for the United States Agency for International Development for Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, congratulations on all your nominations. Uh, I know all of you have a distinguished history of public service. We appreciate your willingness to continue to serve your country and those members of your family. I understand that Senator Bennett and Senator Hickenlooper, our colleagues from Colorado, We'll be introducing Secretary <coughs> Salazar this morning, so we will go to them. Senior Senator from Colorado, Senator Bennett.
Thank you, Chairman Menendez, for having me, and the ranking member as well, for allowing Senator Hickenlooper and me to introduce Ken Salazar, President Biden's nominee, to serve as the United States Ambassador to Mexico. Ken is no stranger to this body, where he served with distinction, and Colorado is honored to call him our own, and I am grateful to call him a mentor and a brother. In my view, President Biden could not have made a better choice. The American Southwest embodies our braided history with Mexico, and I can't think of anyone with a deeper connection to the region than Ken. It, our, our history goes back over 400 years when Ken's family settled in New Mexico before America was even a country. Later, the family journeyed to Colorado's San Luis Valley, where they have farmed for five generations. If you drive down to the valley and visit San Luis, which is Colorado's oldest town, there's a stone marker identifying the state's first irrigation ditch, the People's Ditch. Etched into the stone are the names of farmers and ranchers who were entitled to draw water from that ditch because they were the ones who dug it. And the name Salazar is among them. The valley is a sparse, beautiful part of our state, but it wasn't an easy place to grow up. Salazar Family Ranch in Los Rincones didn't have electricity until 1982. Ken and his siblings grew up reading with oil lamps. They didn't have phones or television. But they did have the example of their parents, both incredible patriots. Ken's father, Henry, served in World War II and became a staff sergeant. He was so proud of his service to America that he asked the family to bury him in uniform, which they did. When the war broke out, Ken's mother, Emma, also wanted to do her part. So she traveled to Washington by herself when she was only 19 to work at the Pentagon. Neither of his parents had a college education, but they worked hard to provide their family with opportunities they never had. All eight of their children, including Ken, became first-time college graduates. They were so proud of everything Ken went on to achieve, from working as a lawyer at top Western firms to breaking barriers as the first Hispanic American elected to statewide office as Colorado's Attorney General, to becoming the first Mexican American elected to the U.S. Senate outside of New Mexico, to joining President Obama's historic cabinet as Secretary of the Interior. Ken is exactly who we need to strengthen our vitally important relationship with Mexico, which is critical to the stability and, and prosperity of our entire hemisphere. But as this committee appreciates, the relationship faces no shortage of challenges, from immigration to trade, energy, resource management, public health, and the rule of law. Ken has worked and lived virtually all of these issues. As Colorado's Attorney General, Ken negotiated several extradition arrangements with Mexico, many of which remain in place today. In the Senate, he led important immigration reform with Ted Kennedy and John McCain. He shaped major provisions of the Farm Bill. He helped craft bipartisan energy bills. When he left to serve in the administration, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell praised his leadership on the floor, and the Senate confirmed his nomination unanimously. As Interior Secretary, 
can negotiate water-sharing agreements between the U.S. and Mexico and strengthen bilateral cooperation around conservation to protect Big Bend National Park along the Rio Grande. I could go on, Mr. Chairman, but it comes down to this. You would struggle mightily to find someone more qualified than Ken. He has the experience and substance to hit the ground running and a life story that represents America at our best. I urge the committee to advance his nomination with an overwhelming bipartisan vote. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. When I'm up for a nomination, I want you introducing me, Senator Bennett. <laughs> Senator Hickenlooper. Well, good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee. Uh, I am also equally honored to introduce Secretary Ken Salazar, President Biden's nominee to be U the U.S. Ambassador to the United Mexican States. I've known Ken for over 30 years, uh, from when we first had a jazz club in the basement of my restaurant, and he was raising money for a, a, a campaign of, uh, to protect open lands in southern Colorado called La Tierra. Uh, we got John Nichols to come speak and raised, I think we raised sixteen or $1,800. Uh, his older brother, John, who some of you remember when, from serving in the House, was my Secretary of Agriculture my first term as governor. Uh, Ken has been beside me on every campaign and every major issue, uh, every political battle I fought, and I've tried to be by his side as well. As Michael said, his family story is emblematic, emblematic of the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. His family settled in southwest United States, what was then New Spain, in the 16th century. Uh, his ancestors helped found the city of uh, Santa Fe. Uh, Michael described him growing up on Los Rincones without electricity. He didn't mention that Los Rincones is a scrabble of about six buildings. Uh, the big city, Manasa, which is four miles away, almost has a population of 1,000. Again, the ranch down there is one of the most beautiful places in Colorado. Uh, my son Teddy learned to ride, uh, ride a horse on this ranch when he was 11 years old. Uh, and of those eight children uh, that, that Ken's parents, Emma and Henry, raised, all eight graduated from, from college. And I was also found it, well, you'll have to get him to tell the story at some point, but children six, seven, and eight were all born on the same long night which is a, a story he'll, can, only he can tell. Uh, he served Governor Romer, both as uh, chief counsel and as uh, Secretary of Natural Resources. Um, and both in those roles and as a U.S. Senator and as a Secretary of Interior, he never shied away from tough issues. Uh, he understands the importance of collaboration, bipartisanship, pragmatism. He is a, a, a world-class negotiator, which I think he got from his mother, Emma, she was about five feet two inches, uh, and yet one of the strongest, most potent political forces in Colorado. She blessed two generations of candidates, and they weren't always Democrats. Uh, but she blessed two, two generations. She blessed me on my uh, uh, re-election in 2014 when she was 91 years old. Uh, when he came to the Senate, Ken designated and chose Senator John McCain as his mentor as a freshman senator, and the two worked together on immigration reform, uh, both working with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, he convened ranchers and environmentalists throughout his term 
as, in the sec as Secretary, as Interior Secretary, uh, on water issues, uh, conservation issues, et cetera. Uh, from a ranch in Conejos County, Colorado, to the hallways of this chamber, Ken has, has had a, 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 a package of experiences that make him uniquely qualified to be a remarkable ambassador to Mexico. Mexico is an important ally and trading partner. Uh, Nuevo Laredo now is our largest port of entry, uh, and in many in so many cases, the United States and Mexico share priorities. Um, and I think that it's a delicate point in the relationship now, a point that demands someone with the skills of Ken Salazar. All of us in Colorado are so grateful for all of his contributions, the things that he has done. Uh, he created something called Great Outdoors Colorado that to this day is perhaps the greatest public-private partnership around land conservation in the, in the history of this country. Uh, in everything that he's done, he's been able to bring people together, resolve conflict, and create progress. And that's exactly what we need now. We're all fortunate, fortunate that he is once again answering the call to service, take on this crucial role at this crucial time. I wholeheartedly support his nomination, and I hope that he gets widespread support from every single person on this committee. Well, thank you, Senator Hickenlooper. I didn't think there was much that could be added after Senator Bennett, but you did a fantastic job of, of filling out the total, <laughs> the total picture. So we know that both of you have very busy agendas, and you're welcome to excuse yourselves at any time. Um, with that, uh, let me take a moment to introduce Ms. Jessica Lewis. It's with a mixture of deep pride and wistfulness that we are here today considering the nomination of Ms. Lewis to be the next Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. I, like many others in both the Senate and the House, have had the good fortune of working closely with Ms. Lewis and benefiting from her exceptional wisdom, drive, and judgment. Ms. Lewis is recognized across party lines as one of the most effective and respected leaders on Capitol Hill. She's a trailblazer for women in national security. Indeed, if approved by the Senate, she will be the first woman confirmed to hold this position. You all know her as the majority staff director of this committee and prior to that as the senior national security and foreign policy advisor for then majority leader Harry Reid. What you may not know is that she came to Capitol Hill almost two decades ago to work for me as a foreign policy advisor and staff director of the Western Hemisphere <laughs> Subcommittee in the House of Representatives. So we're proud of all of Jessica's accomplishments since then. And while it would be impossible to catalog all of these accomplishments here, I do want to highlight her leadership, her steady hand during this past year in particular, leading the staff to an incredibly productive year, while also providing invaluable advice on the committee's foreign policy priorities. I have been deeply impressed, and that's not an easy thing to do, but not at all surprised. Um, I'd like to highlight that Ms. Lewis's tireless dedication over her entire career to mentoring young professionals as well, elevating her colleagues and empowering those who have not been traditionally represented in the field are exemplary, and I have no doubt she will apply herself in the same way and with equal success at the State Department. Uh, Secretary Salazar is a, is a friend of mine and of this committee, and I am deeply gratified by your nomination to be Ambassador to Mexico. It is a testament to the Biden administration's seriousness about restoring a productive and respectful relationship with the people and government of Mexico, one of the most important and expansive bilateral relationships we have. The task ahead of you is great. 
You'll need to continue engaging on the critical issues of trade and migration that have been central in our bilateral relationship, while also engaging on the often uncomfortable issues that face both our nations, including the trafficking of drugs, weapons and people, environmental threats, and issues of democracy, governance, and rule of law, including with respect to human rights and labor rights. I have no doubt that your vast experience in government, your personal ties to Mexico, and your commitment to bipartisan solutions will make you an excellent ambassador upon your confirmation. Uh, the Office of Political and Military Affairs, uh, for which Ms. Lewis has been nominated, are of vital importance to U.S. foreign and national security policy and to this committee. It is a position with immense impact for safeguarding U.S. national security and promoting and accomplishing vital U.S. foreign policy objectives. In recent years, the Bureau's relationship and credibility with this committee has been strained, though it has been improving. I expect that with Ms. Lewis at the helm, the Bureau's level of cooperation with the oversight activities of and consultation with this committee will improve considerably, and I will put that expectation to the test. Ambassador Liu, I'm pleased to see you back again before this committee, this time to be the next Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asian Affairs, a region of critical importance and significant challenges. Indeed, the rapidly deteriorating situation in Afghanistan will require sustained Senate oversight for how the administration plans to mitigate the effects of the withdrawal. I, along with many members of this committee, are especially concerned about the plight of women, the minorities, as the Taliban continues to gain military strength. In addition, as the administration evacuates the first group of Afghan SIV applicants, I continue to be concerned about the thousands of remaining Afghan SIV applicants and our Afghan human rights and democracy partners whose lives remain in grave danger from the Taliban. And as you know, any peaceful resolution to this conflict must be regional in nature and will require the Assistant Secretary to be deeply engaged. Our relationship with India is growing, bolstered by a vibrant Indian-American community here in the United States. I expect our diplomats to deepen this relationship while remaining true to our core values and raising concerns as necessary. In Bangladesh, I continue to advocate for labor rights and the establishment of unions to ensure that workers in every sector can work in safe conditions. There will be no shortage of challenges, but I'm confident that your knowledge and experience in the region will serve you well as you take on this role. Ms. Escobar, your extensive experience helping countries in our hemisphere chart a path towards prosperity, including in your previous service as USAID Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean Bureau, which make you exceptionally qualified for this position. As you know, the challenges we face in the region are growing by the day. Democratic backsliding has accelerated in many countries, aggravating by the ongoing socioeconomic impact of COVID-19. With the recent assassination in Haiti, widespread protests and regime violence in Cuba, an authoritarian crackdown in Nicaragua, humanitarian emergency in Venezuela, and numerous challenges related to irregular migration. The Western Hemisphere today is less secure, less prosperous, and less stable than it had been in many years. We look forward to hearing how you will work to address those challenges if confirmed. Closing, the four of you have uh, immense challenges ahead. I'm confident that your rich experiences will serve you well as you take on your new responsibilities upon confirmation. Look forward to your testimonies. And this is normally a little longer than we would in introducing uh, nominees, but you're coming into critical positions. So uh, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his opening remarks. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and thanks to our witnesses for joining us today and your willingness to serve, and of course, your families who will share, share in that sacrifice. I want to start with the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for South Asian Central Affairs. Uh, personally, my 
uh, top two foreign policy priorities are China and global health, and India is a major player in both of these priorities. I look forward to hearing your views on how we can work with India to maintain a favorable balance of power in the Indian Ocean and continue to bar partner in the fight against COVID and other global health concerns, including vaccine development and manufacturing in India. It's also becoming clear that a hasty U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan threatens to squander our hard-fought gains there. Ambassador Liu, we welcome uh, your thoughts on the way ahead. Next, we have the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs. Our security partnerships are essential to protecting our vital national interest. They are also a critical aspect of competition with China and Russia. We often hear from our allies and partners about the problems and the speed of our security cooperation process, and often state is at the forefront of these problems. I look forward to hearing how you plan to strengthen our relationships with partners and allies and keep the U.S. Uh, the security partner of choice around the world. I have no doubt you have great qualifications uh, for that task in as much as uh, your service on this uh, committee has uh, shown that to be such. On the nomination of Assistant Administrator of USAID for Latin America and Caribbean, if confirmed, you will have no shortage of challenges, especially the political and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Growing violence and poverty in Haiti, surrounding the recent assassination of uh, President Moise, uh, democracy in Cuba and Nicaragua, and holding governments in Central America accountable for addressing the drivers of irregular immigration. Uh, and for the nomination of uh, U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, uh, uh, Senator Salazar, Secretary Salazar, it's good to see you again. As neighbors, Mexico and the United States share an enduring interest in maintaining robust security and economic cooperation. I look forward to hearing your thoughts, especially on how to address the growing role of Mexican transnational criminal organization in the production and trafficking of fentanyl into the United States. I think all of us have been shocked by the state of politics in Mexico with the huge number of assassinations that have taken place of people that are running for uh, public office in, uh, in, in the current uh, uh, state of affairs there. It's uh, staggering uh, how many people have been killed. Uh, ambassadors, uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Salazar, uh, Senator Salazar, your, uh, your ability to handle these things, I have absolutely no question about. It's been a pleasure working with you on uh, issues that were parochial to my state while you were Secretary of Interior. Enjoyed serving with you briefly in this chamber. And with that, I will yield back time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. All right, we'll turn to our nominees. We'll start with Secretary Salazar and move down to dais. We ask you to summarize your statement in about five minutes so we can have a conversation with you. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And with that, we recognize Secretary Salazar. Thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez uh, and uh, uh, Ranking Member Risch uh, and all the members of this committee for uh, the time this morning. Uh, I appreciate your service and your leadership on this committee. I also want to acknowledge and thank my good friends, uh, Senator Michael Bennett and Senator John Hickenlooper for their long journey with me together, working on issues that we so much care about for Colorado and the United States of America. And I want to acknowledge my family back in Colorado in the San Luis Valley and in Denver, uh, my wonderful wife, Esperanza, watching this uh, hearing this morning with uh, Melinda, Andrea, Mireya, and Selena, and Blake, and all of my family in the Valley. Uh, thank you so much for being the wind beneath my wings for all of the journey that I've had in this wonderful life of mine. 
Let me also acknowledge my guests here today, uh, uh, former colleagues from the U.S. Senate as well as friends, uh, uh, Stephanie Valencia, Felicia Escobar, and uh, Dan Restrepo. I thank them for their help in my own, in my journey. So let me also say, uh, this is a very proud moment for me. Proud because President Joe Biden is a person who cares a lot about Mexico, Central America, Latin America. His many trips, even as vice president, trying to deal with these issues that have been around for the United States for a very long time, are a testament to his attention to the North-South relationship and to the Western Hemisphere. And so I am very proud to be able to work with him, to have the opportunity of confirmed by this committee in the Senate, uh, to be able to work on the issues that he so much cares about. And likewise, Vice President Kamala Harris, she and I knew each other back in her days as Attorney General, and I know her interest in dealing with the issues, including the root causes in uh, the relationship between the U.S., Mexico, Central America, and Latin America. So I very much look forward to being a part of their team, but I can only do that work effectively if I also work closely with the members of, these committee, of this committee, and that includes both the majority and the minority staff. It includes uh, you, Senator Menendez, Senator Risch, and each of the members of this committee. We may not always agree, but what I will make sure I do is that I have the opportunity to hear your voices and to work with you to deal with these solutions that, uh, or these challenges and create solutions that we have all been looking for. So let me just say a word about how I uh, see the issues uh, for the United States and Mexico. Our futures are inextricably bound together uh, as two nations, as a people that have a very common uh, heritage. We are inextricably bound together because of the demographics of our two nations. We are inextricably bound together because of the migration patterns of the history of our two nations. We are inextricably bound together with uh, our economic and jobs dreams and the prosperity for both nations. And we are inextricably bound together with uh, the dream of security and, and freedom from the fear of violence that we currently see uh, on, on the border and both sides of the border and on the southern border of Mexico, as well as in other places in Latin America. And we're bound together by our history and by our heritage. Won't spend a long time talking about those issues, but very quickly on the demographics. We have about 170 million Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in both countries. It's interesting that of those 170 million, more than one-fourth of the population resides here in the United States. And they come from families like mine that have been around through our heritage for 400, 700 years with our Native American, Mexican, and Spanish backgrounds through the Mexican-American War in 1848, and then for the last 170 years as American citizens. We're bound together because the issues of migration have brought us together. Uh, historically through the push and pull of the history of migration into this country. It's an issue which still bedevils this country in terms of how we deal with a sustainable, orderly migration system. And in order to get to that point, we have to work closely with the Mexican government to share our, our, our interests in, in dealing with those issues. We are bound together because of our economy and jobs. You know, they say that uh, the Latino population is the mainstream economy in the United States, some 60 million strong, Cuban-Americans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, and 60 million strong, contributing greatly to the economy of the United States and to the future 
political and demographics of, of this country. So we need to make sure that we're integrating that community. And on security, we cannot deal with the security issues without having the Mexican government working with us. It is incumbent upon them because it is a shared responsibility that we have to deal with the violence issues both on that side of the border as well as on this side of the border. So let me just conclude by saying, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Risch, this is a very proud moment for me. It is a very proud moment because of our history, but it's also a very proud moment as I look forward to the future, yes, full of challenges, but full of opportunities. It's a proud moment for us to bring the two nations closer together and to deal with the kind of reality that creates prosperity, security, and peace for the peoples of both the United States and Mexico. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Secretary Salazar. Uh, Ms. Lewis. Chairman Menendez, thank you, first of all, for your kind words. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, I am honored and humbled to be here today as the Biden-Harris administration's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. I would like to thank President Biden for nominating me and Secretary Blinken for his support. I was not lucky enough to start my career on this committee under then Chairman Biden when uh, Secretary Blinken was the staff director on the committee. I would also like to thank my father, Robert Lewis, for raising my sister and me. His strength and love after my mother, Molly Lewis, passed away when I was a child made me who I am today. I'm also lucky to have the love and support of my stepmother, who is truly my second mother, Patricia Lewis. And I am joined by my sister, Caitlin Griffith, Griffith who has been with me every step of the way. My greatest joy in life has been as a mother, and I would like to thank my nine-year-old son, Matthew, who is wisely enjoying a day of summer camp today and sitting, instead of sitting through a hearing. And to my incredible community of friends, thank you for being my second family. I would also like to personally thank Chairman Menendez, who hired me nearly 20 years ago as a staffer on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and who trained me to be a staffer. The chairman has the sharpest mind I have ever encountered and has taught me to stand up for what I believe in. I would not be here before the committee today if it were not for Senator Menendez. I would like to thank former Senator Harry Reid, who taught me the ways of the Senate during my nine years working for him, and Senator Cardin, who brought me on as staff director of this committee. And finally, I would like to thank the outstanding bipartisan staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. To my team, you are simply the best. To my Republican colleagues, working with you has taught me that when we can come together, as we recently did on the China bill, which passed this committee with overwhelming support, we are at our very best. I've spent my entire career in public service. If confirmed, I would be honored to continue that path at the State Department. I began my career teaching third grade in public schools and believe my work as a teacher serves as a foundation for all I do today. I then worked at the Organization of American States, running education, training, and technology programs in Latin America. Since then, I've spent nearly 20 years on the Hill and have worked on some of the most critical national security legislation of our time. I staffed the conference committee for the legislation that implemented the 9-11 Commission recommendations in the early 2000s and recently negotiated the passage of the Countering American Adversaries Through Sanctions Act only a few years ago. And as Senator Reid's National Security Advisor, I work directly with the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees, the Defense Department, and our intelligence agencies. 
The Bureau of Political Military Affairs manages our arms sales and security assistance, negotiates international security agreements, and manages our security relationships with other countries. The Bureau is also in charge of U.S. programs to help countries cope with the after <laughs> effects of war through conventional weapons destruction programs. If confirmed, I would focus on four areas. First, as President Biden promised, I plan to enhance the consideration of human rights in our decision-making to ensure our arms sales are in our foreign policy interest and in line with American values. Second, I'm committed to reinvigorating the Bureau's relationship with this committee and with Congress. Third, I want to focus on strengthening the workforce at the Bureau and specifically its efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Fourth, I believe the judicious provision of U.S. defense equipment can deepen our relationships with our allies and partners and support our foreign policy and national security. I believe if government can help to keep the global playing field level, our defense companies can continue to outcompete any rival while upholding our values. In conclusion, if confirmed, I am committed to leveraging the tools of the Political Military Affairs Bureau in the service of U.S. foreign policy and American values. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. <clears throat> and as a good staffer, you came in under five minutes, so it's just amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ambassador Liu. Mr. Chairman, to have uh, Ranking uh, Member Risch, distinguished members of this committee. Uh, it, I am honored and humbled to be here today as President Biden's nominee to be the next uh, Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs. Uh, I'm grateful to the President and to Secretary Blinken for the confidence that they have shown in me. I would not be here today without the loving support of my family. I'm joined today by my wife and best friend, Ariel, and we have two wonderful teenagers at home, Kip and Alia. Uh, unlike Secretary Salazar's kids, they are not watching, they are sleeping soundly at the moment. Uh, as the son of an immigrant to the United States, I am particularly proud to have served my country in the U.S. Foreign Service and the Peace Corps. During my 30 years at the State Department, I have worked in India, Pakistan, and Central Asia, advancing our agenda on counterterrorism, democracy, and anti-corruption. As someone who believes deeply that the Foreign Service and Civil Service should look like the face of America, I am committed to implementing the President's vision on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mr. Chairman, as with the President's decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan by September 11, we are faced with new, new risks and new opportunities. And in particular, we have a historic opportunity to rebalance our relations with the countries of this region to better reflect our long-term strategic priorities. First, it is in our national interest to continue to strengthen our fast-growing strategic, economic, and people-to-people -people ties with India, while also speaking forthrightly about human rights and our democratic values. As two great Indo-Pacific powers, we must strive to ensure that our Asian partners remain sovereign and free and not dominated by a single power. As two great democracies, we must demonstrate through our example why democracy promotes peace, stability, and personal freedoms. As two great free market economies, we can build a more stable and inclusive global economy. As a producer of 60% of the world's vaccines, India is critical to the global fight against COVID-19. And if confirmed, I would work with India to end this devastating pandemic. And I commit to working with India and our partners to tackle the climate crisis. Second, on Pakistan, we have for more than 20 years defined our relations with this important partner 
primarily through the prism of counterterrorism and security. If confirmed, I will build on our long history of friendship with Pakistan to advance human rights, religious freedom, counterterrorism cooperation, and an improved business cl climate for American investors. Third, on Afghanistan. I started my career working on the Afghan border in the Pakistani city of Peshawar. I saw then firsthand the desperate plight of Afghan refugees. I have a deep commitment to encouraging peace, security, human rights, and the rights of women and girls. If confirmed, I will work to advance our objectives in Afghanistan. Finally, in the other countries of South and Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and the Maldives, we face competition from China and Russia like never before. We must recommit ourselves to robust engagement with these countries to support their sovereignty and independence in the face of many challenges. Critical new tools have been authorized in this effort, from the creation of the Development Finance Corporation to this committee's important work on the Strategic Competition Act. If confirmed, I will work to make the United States a reliable international partner for the governments and peoples of this, these countries, one who is willing to call out malign influence and stand up for human rights and democracy. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I will take seriously my role as a steward of the public trust. I will safeguard our precious resources, our people, our embassies, and the strong reputation of the United States. I believe in the importance of our voice in support of human rights, religious freedom, and democracy. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with the Congress to build robust relations between the United States and the nations of South and Central Asia. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Ms. Escobari. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. It's an honor to be nominated by President Biden to serve as Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at USAID. My passion for development was sparked by growing up in Bolivia, one of the poorest countries in our hemisphere, the daughter of two pediatricians who worked in the country's public hospitals. They brought home a passion for helping one child at a time, but also the frustrations of seeing kids die more from disease than poverty. They wanted to prevent disease, not just treat it. My father started the first blood bank in our city, and my mother tried to change culture, implementing practices of hand washing in maternity wards. My parents inspired me to tackle the root causes, not just the symptoms of poverty. So I want to thank them who are watching today, my husband, Baron, our sons, Nico and Lucas, and our friends and families who support and love are the reasons I can sit before you today. When I had the honor to serve in this role for the last year of the Obama administration, the region faced acute threats. Venezuela's economy had contracted by 60% and 300,000 people had fled the country. Hurricane Matthew had hit an already battered Haiti and Colombia was embarking on a fragile peace process. Now the stakes are even higher. The pandemic has hit Latin America harder than any other region in the world. 5.6 million people have fled Venezuela, a humanitarian crisis created by an oppressive and inept regime. The people of Cuba and Nicaragua are seeing renewed crackdowns on their most fundamental rights. And one of the strongest democracies in the region, Colombia, is being shaken by economic and social unrest. Our ability to extend a hand, 
urgently and wholeheartedly in partnership with our southern neighbors will largely determine the course of the region's recovery. I believe that the stakes are profound, nothing less than the faith of the region's citizens that liberal democracy, rule of law, and market-based economies can deliver on their most pressing needs. The inability, and in a few cases, unwillingness of national governments to respond to these needs have led to political instability that threatens the future of the region, as well as the security of the United States. So I sit before you with a sense of urgency. If confirmed, I will focus on these pressing issues, combating COVID-19, confronting the security and migration crisis in Central America, and strengthening governance across the region. My passion and conviction come from my parents, but my optimism that we can make a difference is grounded in a career studying and implementing development. My early experiences in the private sector taught me the importance of creating conditions for investment and growth. In academia, I learned the value of good ideas. And while there are no silver bullets, there's a lot that we know about what works and what doesn't. If confirmed, I will bring a focus on data and evidence, as well as the ability to iterate quickly on lessons learned. During my time at USAID, I had the privilege to work with dedicated and knowledgeable professionals who regularly go above and beyond the call of duty. If confirmed, I will empower their efforts and contribute to a culture where respect, equity, diversity, and inclusion are part of our values and the way that we operate, both here and abroad. Since leaving the Obama administration, I've worked on the barriers to inclusion and opportunity faced by workers here in the United States. We often draw lines between the so-called developed and developing, between global north and global south. But in truth, there is no bright line when it comes to the crippling effects of poverty. The needs for inclusive, sustained growth is as real in Appalachia as it is in Antigua. So I hope to bring that humility to this job, the sense that every nation is a work in progress. And given the cross-border nature of our challenges, climate change, pandemics, cyber threats, our fates are linked, and our ability to work together even more urgent. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you all. Let me start with a series of questions on behalf of the full committee, uh, and a simple yes or no from each of you would suffice. Uh, <laughs> I have these questions that speak to the importance of that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So I'd ask each of you to provide just a yes or no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Uh, do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing a notification after the fact? Yes. 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 And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 All right. Thank you. Um, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? If I turn to you now? Okay. All right. Uh, all right, let me start off then, a round of five minutes. Uh, uh, Secretary Salazar, in the last four years, there were serious problems in the U.S. cooperation with Mexico on migration issues. The previous administration threatened Mexico with sanctions over migration, implemented policies that forced asylum seekers to remain in dangerous 
Mexican border communities during their application process and signed a series of agreements whose contents have never been provided in full to Congress. Several of these policies, in my view, were morally reprehensible as well as potentially unlawful. And while the Biden administration has taken steps to put things on a better path, we need a holistic strategy to strengthen bilateral cooperation on migration issues and ensure that the United States upholds its international obligations and domestic laws. So can you take a moment, you, you, you referenced it somewhat in your own personal history, but to lay out the vision of how you view the United States and Mexico working together to uh, have a productive and respectful manner to address uh, the challenges related to irregular migration? Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we need to find the synergy with Mexico to deal with a shared set of challenges. Mm -hmm. For Mexico, there is displacement underway with people leaving Mexico and coming into this country because of a lack of opportunity there. Uh, the Mexican government has an interest in making sure that their people stay there. No one would want to be l going away from their home to a country far away unless they were fleeing poverty or violence or other forms of, uh, of, uh, of distress. And so what we need to do is to have a high-level dialogue uh, with Mexico to address both the short-term issues uh, that currently deal with the issue of irregular migration, but also as the President and the Vice President have said, dealing with the longer-term issues of the root causes. And so working with uh, my colleagues, hopefully if I get confirmed uh, in the State Department, including the panel who is here today, as well as Secretary Blinken and the President and the Vice President, we hope to bring about that kind of dialogue that creates a holistic strategy uh, to deal with the issues of migration. Let me turn to the question of violence and crime. Violence and the influence of organized crime in Mexico have reached highly concerning levels. In the lead-up to the June midterm elections, over 100 politicians were murdered, 36 of whom were running for office. These trend lines and the serious implications for our national security mandate that we find ways to strengthen U.S.-Mexico security cooperation. There are areas for easy there are areas for easy consensus, such as strengthening efforts to address financial crimes uh, tied to the drug trade and expanding bilateral efforts to combat arms trafficking from the U.S. to Mexico. However, in other areas, we face potential obstacles to improving security cooperation, including a new Mexican law approved in December that appears to threaten bilateral cooperation and the linkages between drug traffickers and senior Mexican officials as evidence in the arrest of General Cienfuegos last year. I trust that upon your confirmation, you will give these issues your full attention and keep the committee informed. Mr. Chairman, uh, yes, I will. Uh, this is an area where uh, the administration is already engaged in uh, high-level dialogues with Mexico on how we deal with these shared issues. And it's something that this committee obviously will be involved in, so I very much look forward to working with the administration and you to find the solutions. And finally, there's new data from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, showing that in 2020, over 93,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in the United States, making it the most lethal year for overdoses on record. Opioids and fentanyl in particular pose highly lethal risks to our citizens. And the U.S. government has to undertake every effort possible to address this tragedy. 
we have to improve domestic efforts to address illicit drug consumption. And we must expand efforts to combat the scourge of illicit production and trafficking of fentanyl and other opioids. Data indicates that drug traffickers are increasingly shipping fentanyl precursors from China to Mexico, where drug trafficking organizations are producing fentanyl and trafficking it to the United States. Given the threat to U.S. citizens posed by illicit <laughs> fentanyl trafficking, I also trust you'll raise this issue at the highest levels with Mexican officials upon your confirmation. I will do, Mr. Chairman. All right. Ms. Lewis, uh, just a quick question for you. I have several, but I want to go to the ranking member. Uh, the informal review process for arms sales has existed for decades and is a vital consultative relationship between this committee and the Bureau of Political Military Affairs to work through questions, issues, and concerns about proposed arms sales before they are formally notified to Congress. That relationship suffered under the last administration, but it has improved dramatically under Secretary Blinken. Do I have your commitment to continue and deepen this consultation process uh, with this committee? Yes. The last administration infamously uh, attempted to evade congressional oversight on multiple arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates by abusing authorities intended only for emergencies. There was no serious argument that these sales qualified as emergencies under the law, and this episode I would expect should never be repeated. Do you commit to only recommend using the emergency authorities <coughs> under the Arms Export Control Act in true emergency situations and not in an effort to evade Congress? Yes. Senator Rush. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Secretary Salazar, uh, uh, as you uh, transition into this, I'm, I'm wondering if you're familiar with the backlog of uh, U.S. extradition requests that the United States has out to Mexico. Uh, my state in particular has uh, one unique case, but others also. Uh, we're, we're struggling a bit with this, and certainly you can blame part of it on COVID, but they also seem to drag their feet. Are you familiar with this issue? And, and uh, if not, uh, what, I assume you'll commit to get on board with it and see if we can't move this along a little better. Yes, uh, Senator Risch, uh, I'm generally familiar with the issue. Uh, I will say that uh, as Colorado Attorney General, I worked uh, closely with uh, your Attorney General, now uh, uh, Attorney General Wasden, to develop among the Attorneys General the, at the state level with, this, with our counterparts in Mexico, the Article IV prosecution units, which now exist in many of the Attorneys General's offices around the country. And so I would look forward to bringing that experience in terms of the bilateral relationship to make sure that the extradition processes under the Constitution uh, actually are implemented. I appreciate that. <clears throat> and certainly uh, that work that you did is uh, one of the things that's driving all this, and that is that uh, uh, it, it is streamlining the process, but it's still not moving as fast as we'd like to see it. So appreciate your thoughts on that, and I hope you, you will move forward. Do you have any thoughts on the... Uh, what the chairman made reference to the uh, this uh, number of assassins. Now, understand this is a uh, an internal issue within Mexico, but I, I think Americans were stunned to hear that in this electoral season, which I, they had their elections, I believe, on J June 6th, and on the run-up to that, there were 88 candidates assassinated uh, who were running. I mean, th this is this is not a hallmark of a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. What, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you, uh, Senator Risch. 
we need to make sure that we have a strong democracy here at home in the United States and also that in Mexico they are a sovereign and we respect their sovereignty. But they too have a shared interest in making sure that the violence, including the assassinations of the last, uh, that occurred during the last election, are something that does not happen. And so it is something that I am certain we'll be able to work with the Mexican government as we enter into the dialogues between the United States and Mexico to address uh, the issues of violence. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Liu, uh, <clears throat> I want to talk for a minute about our uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. I, I noted this just within the last uh, 24, 48 hours, the Taliban met with the Chinese, uh, a delegation from China. And uh, I don't know what was on the agenda. I can about assure you what was not on the agenda was human rights or treatment of the Uyghurs. What, what, what are your thoughts as far as uh, China's now uh, moving into that vacuum? Senator Rich, um, first, thank you for your uh, attention and interest in this important issue. I read with concern the same press articles about the Chinese meeting with the Taliban. Um, I, I know that the countries surrounding Afghanistan, including China, share many of the same concerns we have about the deteriorating situation there. I can assure you, if confirmed, I will do everything in my power to encourage those countries to be messaging directly to the Taliban that any recognition, any assistance, any support is contingent upon the Taliban's participation in a peace process that results in a negotiated political settlement, as well as respect for the pro progress that has been made over the last 20 years in respecting minority rights, the rights of women and girls, and counterterrorism. We do face the challenge of um, independent countries with different views in that region, but I firmly believe we share a common goal of having stability and peace in Afghanistan. Thanks for your thoughts on that. I, <clears throat> I, my personal view, I, I think it's going to be a heavy lift trying to convince the Taliban that uh, they will respect the uh, gains that have been made in that country uh, for women's rights, but uh, uh, it's our duty to, uh, to press on with that. And, uh, I'm encouraged to hear your words in that regard. I, I expect that that's what you'll do. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You're back. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Ranking Member Rich, and congratulations to the nominees. What a wonderful panel. I'm particularly happy uh, to see my longtime friend, Senator Zalazar, and also uh, Ms. Lewis, who's just a stellar part of the Senate family. It's always nice to see a member of the Senate family on the other side of the dais being nominated for a position for which their work entitles them. So congratulations to all of you. Uh, Senator Salazar, let, let me start with you uh, with respect to one particular challenging aspect of the U.S.-Mexico relationship right now, and that is the uh, targeting of the press and journalists in Mexico. I place a real high emphasis on protecting freedom of the press. Senator Graham and I introduced a bill in May um, the International Press Freedom Bill to help make journalists safer overseas and even create a special visa category to enable threatened journalists to find safe haven in the United States. Um, I'm really concerned about uh, attacks on journalists, and for years Mexico has been the deadliest country in the world for journalists. Eight journalists were killed in 2020. Three have been killed so far this year. Um, I took a CODEL recently with six members, bipartisan in Mexico, at the beginning of July, 
and we met with civil society groups and groups of journalists, and they really laid out their concerns about this. Often the attacks are uh, unsolved. Um, they don't necessarily believe the attacks are by the government, but they're often by criminal groups who are not then investigated, and they feel like there's sort of an impunity when it comes to um, analyses and investigation and certainly prosecution of these attacks. There is a unit within the equivalent of the Attorney General's office in Mexico that's supposed to focus on these attacks, but it, it's widely criticized for solving one or two high-profile cases and then letting others go unaddressed. Should you be confirmed, and I'll do all I can to make sure that you are, how might you address this particular issue to try to promote more safety for those uh, journalists in Mexico? Thank you, uh, Senator Kane, and thank you as well for your longtime service and, and friendship and guidance over the year on some years on so many issues. You raise a issue that is uh, of a very serious nature. Uh, here in this country, we all celebrate the fact that we have a First Amendment and that we have freedom of the press. And it's something that is one of the most enshrined values of our society and of, of democratic societies. And so when those who are moving forward with the reporting of the news, uh, the journalists that you speak about, have to live under threat and uh, are in a position where their reporting ends up uh, getting uh, 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 trampled upon in some way by uh, whoever does it. We have a shared interest with Mexico. And Mexico, from my point of view, does not want to tolerate what's happening now with uh, some of uh, the, the violence against, against journalists. So I would commit to you, Senator Kane, that I would work with the Mexican government uh, with, at all levels to address this issue and work closely with you to make sure that we're addressing this issue not only in Mexico but around the world. Thank you, Senator Salazar. And here's a, a question for both Ms. Escobar and Senator Salazar, and, and maybe Ms. Escobar, I'll start with you. Um, the U.S. is going to host the Summit for the Americas, which happen, happens every three or four years. The timing is a little bit variable now as to whether it will be late 21 or early 22. The U.S. hasn't hosted it since 1994. Um, I think it's a particularly important time to have the Summit for the Americas because of you know, COVID and vaccine diplomacy and backsliding democracies and street unrest in many nations. Um, so it's a really important time. Uh, Mr. Chair, I, I really look forward to taking up the Brian Nichols nomination soon. I know it was held over today at Senator Cruz's request, but for the U.S. to host the Summit for the Americas without a confirmed State Department uh, head over the uh, Western Hemisphere Division would be a challenge. But as you think about participating either from the USAID space or uh, from as Ambassador to Mexico in a Summit for the Americas, what would be the kinds of things that you would like to see on the agenda um, in that summit. Thank you, Senator, and, uh, and for your commitment to, to development through many years. Um, there are many priorities in the region. I think uh, just to start, I would say that, uh, um, that COVID at times feels like priority one, two, and three just because it's, it's, uh, it's ravaged the region. The reasons, there are structural reasons why that's been the case, high urbanization, you know, informality, uh, poor health systems, but really it has had not only uh, the highest rates of deaths, but also the highest contractions of GDP uh, uh, in anywhere in the, in the world. So 
the ability to gather with the region, with our help, with other allies internationally, to help in the, in the procurement of vaccines and in the distribution of vaccines and eventually in the manufacturing of vaccines uh, and their safe and equitable distribution, I think would be at the top of that list. I, I will submit that the second half of the question to Senator Salazar for the record since I'm over my time, but I appreciate uh, the opportunity to visit with you all. Thank you. Thank Mr. You. Uh, Mr. Chairman, might I just make a quick response to his question since I think it's relevant to most of the committee uh, of members? Of course. Of course. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senator Kane. The Summit of the Americas, to me, represents a great opportunity for Canada, the United States, and Mexico to really stand up the North American continent. So as I participate in that process, if I am confirmed by the Senate, I expect that on the agenda we'll be talking about economic <laughs> issues, jobs, trade, economic opportunity, migration, and how we deal with those issues, both from Canada and from Mexico, uh, the borders. I imagine we, we should be talking and will be talking about security given the high-level dialogues that are going on. But in addition to that, the whole issue of conservation and environment. The shared borders are political borders, but the environment and the ecology, transborder into Canada, transborder into Mexico are also very important. And so how we deal with that issue, in my view, uh, should be a part of what we focus on on the summit uh, for uh, North America. Thank you. I understand we have Senator Young with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Chairman, and, and welcome to our nominees. Um, Senator Salazar, when, when I served along our southern border as a Marine Corps officer in the mid-1990s, I saw firsthand the impact of the border crisis uh, on, on our own country and on, on those who were crossing our, our southern border. Sadly, the scale of the crisis has become much greater today. Uh, this has indeed become what you might characterize as a 50-state border crisis. The vast majority of migrants, I understand, are not coming from Mexico, but from other countries further south. And that means that uh, our, our neighbor, Mexico, is suffering from a migration crisis of its own, including securing its own southern border, uh, addressing humanitarian issues just like we are, and uh, dealing with the economic stresses of uh, surging migration across their uh, southern states. The task is made even more challenging for that government by the presence of predatory criminal trafficking groups in the region. How do you view Mexico's responsibility, Mr. Senator, uh, in actions to secure its southern border? And if you can speak to the largest enforcement gaps where Mexico needs to focus to gain greater supervision over its southern border, I'd really appreciate that. Thank you uh, very much, Senator Young, and thank you as well for your service. Uh, you start from a reality that we're facing, with, facing in this country and have faced for a very long time. You described the situation at the border back in the 1990s when you were serving it around the border, and the reality of it is that these issues have been with us for a very long time. And that really underscores an important role of this committee and a very important priority for the president and for the vice president and that's long-term, looking at the root causes of what's creating this problem. I mean, we've had these challenges for a very long time, and as you say, uh, very much affecting Mexico in terms of the migrant trail that we now see going across Mexico. So how we work with Mexico to 
develop a strategy that is effective, both for the short term and the long term, will be one of the highest priorities that I will take on as ambassador to Mexico. The Mexican government has said clearly that and, and are providing significant resources into securing their own southern border. They have said and are working on trying to help their uh, the, the Central American countries to the south. And so we need to succeed on that mission in a collaborative way with Mexico so that we can address the problem for the long term. And I commit Senator Young to working with you and the members of this committee to make sure we get that done. Well, thank you for that commitment. And uh, I, I am appreciative of that. I know other members of the committee are as well. Let me dive into a couple of specifics. There are networks of spotters, guides, informants, all within Mexico that are se severely degrading efforts of the U.S. Border Patrol to try and, and secure that border, which I think is in the interest, of course, of, of just not, not just of the United States, but also of uh, our Mexican neighbor. So if confirmed, what will you do to improve coordination and cooperation between the U.S. and Mexican Border Patrol authorities? S Senator Young, uh, that is underscores the importance of uh, what the Biden administration is doing uh, with Secretary Blinken and others engaging in the high-level dialogue around security and violence issues. And we expect that we will spend a good amount of our time working on those issues if I am fortunate enough to get confirmed by the United States Senate, uh, I commit to you that that will be one of the highest priority issues. If you look at the surge that's occurred uh, really since earlier this year, I do understand this is an ongoing, long-standing problem, as I acknowledged from the beginning, but there's been a surge from the uh, beginning of this year. Why does it appear that Mexico has been less willing to work with the Biden administration on, um, on this uh, immigration unauthorized than the Trump administration. You know, Senator Young, uh, I think as uh, Chairman Risch said a few minutes ago, we need to have a holistic approach to the issues in Mexico. It's more than just uh, the issue of uh, a securing the border. Uh, we need to have a, a safe, uh, secure, and efficient uh, border. Mexico shares that interest with us. Uh, we share that interest. Uh, the administration is working hard to develop a, an orderly and fair and humane uh, system of migration into this country. And we need to make sure that we're working together with Mexico and with the U.S. Senate to uh, address that challenge, which has been around for a very long time. Okay. Uh, I, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your service. Um, you did not answer my final question <laughs> about why it appears that Mexico has been less willing to work with the Biden administration, apparently. Uh, on this issue than the Trump administration. So perhaps if you want to weave that into your future comments, you can. Thank you so much. I'm happy to elaborate, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, and congratulations uh, to all of you on your nominations. Uh, Senator Salazar, great to see you back. Thanks for stepping up again. Um, we have just five minutes. I am going to concentrate um, my time on the situation in, in South and Central Asia. Ambassador Liu, thank you for your terrific service uh, as a member of the Foreign Service. You've made us proud. Uh, I see that Secretary Blinken uh, is now in India to discuss a wide range of issues that are important to the United States-Indian relationship uh, and to discuss our common interests in the Quad, and I support that initiative. 
I'd like to focus on the situation in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and I welcome your statement that our relationship with Pakistan should be beyond the one-dimensional security lens, and uh, you indicate uh, that if confirmed, you will build on our long history of friendship with Pakistan to advance human rights, religious freedom, counterterrorism cooperation, and an improved business environment for American investors. And I look forward to working with you uh, to achieve uh, those goals. Uh, of course, uh, a, a key issue that impacts the United States, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the surrounding area uh, is the U.S. withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and what that means. Uh, we had Ambassador Khalilzad uh, before this committee in late April, and I just want to see if you're on the same page with him as to the situation here. So I have a couple of very yes-no questions. Uh, first, do you agree that if uh, Afghanistan uh, descends into total chaos, even more than the conflict we see today, uh, that, that could mean an influx of thousands of refugees uh, into Pakistan? Yes. And do you agree that it's in Pakistan's interest to achieve stability and a political settlement in Afghanistan? Yes, absolutely. And do you agree with Ambassador Khalilzad that in the Doha talks, uh, Pakistan has facilitated the discussions between the Afghan government uh, and the Taliban? Yes, the Afghan government and the Taliban. Certainly the Taliban and the United States, and I think we would like to see Pakistan do even more to facilitate uh, Taliban's involvement in talks with other Afghan leaders. Yeah, and, and would you agree that uh, a political settlement is the only viable long-term path forward? 100%, yes. All right. So one of the things that some of us have proposed on a bipartisan basis, Senator Young from Indiana, Senator Cantwell, myself, and others, is the idea to give all parties some kind of hope and a better economic future. People in Afghanistan, uh, people in those border regions um, of Pakistan, uh, and the idea is to establish uh, what we call reconstruction opportunity zones. And the idea is that textiles and certain other goods that are produced and manufactured in those areas uh, would have duty-free access uh, to the United States uh, in order to establish the potential of a peace dividend and a good future for uh, people in the region. Uh, Ambassador Khalilzad said that he supported the concept. I know the administration's been looking at it. Um, I'm interested in pursuing this with you, the administration. Have you had a chance to look at the proposal, and, and what do you think uh, it could mean in terms of um, the, the, you know, building a better future? Senator Van Hollen, first let me say a huge thanks on behalf of my colleagues at the State Department. Um, it's wonderful to have such a strong supporter of our relations with South Asia sitting in the U.S. Senate. Um, I uh, believe strongly that enhanced economic integration is one of the keys to a durable peace in Afghanistan and throughout the region. I support a deepening of economic ties between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And if confirmed, I will work to expand trade and investment between these two countries and the United States. I believe we should be exploring all of the options on the table. Um, I am personally very interested in the legislation that you and other members of the Senate have proposed. And I look forward, if confirmed, to be providing technical feedback and dialogue to you and other members uh, of the committee uh, from um, State Department, Department of Congress, and the USTR. Thank you. Do we have your uh, commitment that you and the State Department would uh, provide our staff with technical feedback on the legislation? Absolutely. 
Thank you. Now, just in, in closing, you know, I think we've established the important role Pakistan can play in trying to facilitate some kind of negotiated settlement in Afghanistan. I think all of us hope for the best, although we all understand that there are huge risks that we're witnessing right now. But I, I cannot understand why, given that importance, uh, President Biden has not yet contacted directly and called Prime Minister Khan. Can you explain that? It's a mystery to me. Senator, uh, I, I completely agree with you. The dialogue is essential between the United States and Pakistan at a high level. As you know, there have been several high-level administration discussions with Pakistan to include multiple uh, engagements by Secretary Blinken with the Pakistani Foreign Minister. These talks have focused on critical issues. Mr. Ambassador, I don't, I don't, I, I'm aware of all that. Uh, but as you know, the president's reached out to lots of foreign leaders. Given the importance of the future developments in Afghanistan to us, given the importance of the relationship with Pakistan, it seems to me a totally unforced error that the president of the United States has not made that phone call. There's no need for your, you to, uh, to comment. I, I appreciate your service, um, and thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to each of the nominees. Uh, Senator Salazar, good to see you. I enjoyed visiting with you yesterday in my office. Um, as you know, I am increasingly concerned about what appears to be a deliberate and a systematic campaign by the Mexican government to undermine American companies, and especially American energy companies. Just a few weeks ago, the Mexican government gave its state oil fir firm, Pemex, a major shared oil fine over a private consortium led by Houston-based Taloset Energy, which had first discovered the crude and had already invested nearly $350 million in the project. This decision was just one of a series of moves that the Mexican government has pursued to roll back Mexico's historic 2013 energy sector liberalization reforms which benefited both them and us. It goes without saying that these moves are in significant tension with both the Mexican Constitution and the USMCA. On July 20th, I joined Senator Cornyn, Senator Inhofe, and sent a letter to President Biden highlighting these concerns. The next morning, President Lopez Obrador dismissed the letter, saying, quote, there is really no problem and that the concerns are insignificant. Let me start by, by asking you, do, do you agree with the Mexican president that the concerns about Mexico's tilt away from U.S. companies towards Mexican government control of the energy sector towards uh, open hostility to American companies. Do you agree with, with, with the Mexican president that, that, that those concerns are insignificant? Senator Cruz, uh, the rule of law is important, uh, obviously important to us here in the United States and to interests here that are investing in Mexico. And uh, my understanding is the ambassador uh, the U.S. Trade Representative uh, for the United States has said that energy is covered under the United States-Canada-Mexico uh, uh, 
agreement. So I think what we need to do is to raise these issues and uh, make sure that we're protecting American investment in Mexico. So I'm deeply concerned that right now the Mexican government is feeling no meaningful pressure from the Biden administration uh, to reverse its campaign to undermine American energy firms. Uh, and, and so what I'd like to ask you is, first of all, to what degree do you assess that the Mexican government's moves in the energy sector are harmful both to them and to us? Senator Cruz, I intend to work on these issues if confirmed and if I get your support uh, coming out of this committee and, and on the floor of the Senate. Uh, you know, I was very involved in the negotiation of the uh, Gulf of Mexico transboundary agreements with uh, Secretary Clinton and uh, with the support of, of President Obama. It was because of the, those transboundary agreements, which frankly had resolved an issue that had been outstanding for some 50 years, that we've had the investment and the movement that we've had in the energy sector. It's a complicated issue, but I intend to give it everything that I have to see how we can work with the Mexican government. They're a sovereign. I respect their sovereignty but we will work together to see whether we can find some solution to this challenge. So if you're confirmed as ambassador, what specific steps do you expect to take to halt and reverse the Mexican government's targeting of and discrimination against American energy firms? Yeah, we'll work closely with uh, my colleagues uh, in the Biden administration, uh, both in the White House as well as within uh, USDR and the State Department, the Commerce Department, to see how we can address these issues. Do you think it's a problem? It is a problem, sir. Why is it that the Mexican government seems to be moving away from American interests and American priorities and seems to be moving rapidly away from them in the last six months during the Biden administration. Senator Cruz, uh, there's a reality that I do not believe that the United States has uh, engaged in the kind of uh, bilateral uh, relationship with Mexico uh, during the last four years under the former administration or even before that. And so what we need to do is we need to engage in the kinds of dialogues that will make sure that we're developing sustainable issues and a sustainable framework between the United States and Mexico. We can't afford to have our relationship with Mexico go into an abyss of dysfunction, and that's in the shared interest of both the United States and Mexico. And I commit to working not only with uh, the President and the Vice President, my colleagues in the State Department, Secretary Blinken, but with you to see how we can come up with a kind of framework that will address the issues that this committee, both on the Democratic side through Senator Menendez and on the Republican side through Senator Risch, has an interest in dealing with. Because if we do not deal with these issues in this very uh, difficult time in the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico, we will be facing some very significant issues on down the road. Thank you. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of you on your nominations. We appreciate your willingness to continue in public service. Um, I'm going to give Senator Salazar a little rest for a minute and start with you, Ms. Lewis. Um, and again, we will miss you at the committee, but are delighted that you're going to be continuing to do your good work. I think you were with the committee when we passed the Women, Peace, and Security Act, which I am very proud of. It's been a bipartisan effort. We've seen it starting to be implemented in the Department of Defense, I think less so in the Department of State. And so can you talk about how 
you might be able to promote WPS goals and your strategy if confirmed to make sure that it's incorporated into global peace operations, into international military education, conventional weapons, and how you would work with DOD. Absolutely. First of all, Senator, thank you so much for your leadership on this issue. You really have been a guiding light for all of us. Um, in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, there already has been a focus on this issue. Um, one of the changes they have implemented is to make sure that in the training that we provide, that as we look at working with individual militaries, we make sure that the representation of women is equal to the representation of women in their services when we train them. And I was pleased to learn about that. That would be something I would want to continue and grow moving forward. I also think as you look at all of the pieces of the work that the Bureau does, um, other issues such as the great work that the Bureau does, demining, making sure that um, our civilians, civilians are protected from some of these uh, uh, landmines, also has a great impact on local communities, but also specifically on women, and I know that's something that they take into consideration. And then finally, um, as I said in my opening statement, I know that um, uh, really looking at the workforce inside the Bureau would also be something that would be a priority for me. Um, if confirmed, I believe I would be the first woman in this position, but I also am aware that the Bureau has an incredibly talented pool already. Um, and it would be my job to look closely at the unique makeup of this bureau, which includes civil service, foreign service, also um, a number of people in uniform who come over, to make sure that we are also looking at the issue of women uh, moving forward and really using the talents of women inside the bureau. Well, thank you. I appreciate that and look forward to working with you. And as you know, the importance of this initiative is that when women are at the table, we are more successful. Um, in conflict areas, in um, ensuring that success is spread to all elements of a community. So Absolutely. thank you. Uh, Senator Salazar, now that you've caught your breath, um, as you may be aware, New Hampshire has a real challenge with substance misuse. Um, it's been an issue, not just in our state, but throughout the country. And we saw in 2020 that um, we had more overdose deaths drug deaths than we've had any time in our history. And one of the things that we know in New Hampshire is that many of the illegal substances that come into the United States come in through Mexico. And as I understand, there have been some tensions in recent years with Mexico in terms of how we can best work together to intercept and interdict those drugs. So can you talk a little bit about what your approach would be to addressing that with Mexico? Thank you very much, uh, Senator Shaheen, for the question. Uh, the issue of uh, drugs north uh, is something that has been around for a very, very long time. And that issue is exacerbated in part by what China is doing in Mexico right. with fentanyl and all of those issues that are affecting the people of New Hampshire and throughout the United States of America. It's a shared problem uh, between the United States and Mex Mexico and I commit to working uh, with the Mexican government and our United States authorities to look for solutions to the problem. Well, thank you. I hope you will come back to this committee and let us know what resources we can help you with in order to continue to address that in a successful way. Thank you, and, I will. Ambassador Liu, um, I have been very concerned about 
what's happening in Afghanistan now, as I'm sure you are, as we look at the gains made by the Taliban. And one of my biggest areas of concern is what happens to the women and girls in Afghanistan. It's been one of the greatest successes of our efforts there, um, not only the United States, but the international community. So tell me what you think, what more you think we can do as the United States to raise concerns about what's happening there in the international community. How can we support ensuring that the freedoms that women and girls and other ethnic minorities in the country enjoy now aren't totally erased as the Taliban continue to make gains? Senator Shaheen, uh, I was really moved by your tribute to Afghan women who were killed by the Taliban in the hearing in May with Ambassador Khalilzad. Um, I actually knew one of those young women. Fatima Khalil was a senior at the American University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan, the posting I just left. Uh, I spoke at her graduation, one of the brightest, most capable and self-confident people I have ever met in my life. She had an American education, spoke fluent English, a world uh, view that was unlike anyone else, and she could have gone anywhere, done anything. And she decided what she really wanted to do is go back to her home country to work on human rights and the rights of women and girls. And the Taliban killed her for that. Right. So it's personal for me, as I know it is for many of us who have worked in and around this region. Uh, I, I share your deep concern about what's happening now in Afghanistan and the women who, and girls who are at, now at risk. I think it's critical that we continue our robust assistance to the programs that we have been running for years in Afghanistan that have promoted such progress over 20 years, training, education, legal services, but now we have to expand that. We need to look at how we're caring for those who are at risk. And as we know, we're good at doing that all over the world, including in very difficult places, in Cuba, in Russia, in Iran, in North Korea. Uh, we need to up our game. And I know there are very smart people in their interagency right now putting together plans about how we'd use the U.S. refugee uh, uh, admissions process or emergency humanitarian relief to try to mitigate some of these risks and we look forward, if confirmed, to working with you and other members of the Congress to put together that plan. Well, thank you. I look forward to that. My time is up, but I, I just want to relay to you what I heard from some of the women leaders in Afghanistan who were urging us in the United States to have our president, our vice president, all of our high-level officials speak out in the international community about what the Taliban are doing and raise international awareness and condemnation for what is happening there. So I hope you will agree to do that if confirmed. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Senator Sheen, and thank you for your leadership in this regard. We, we appreciate your clarion voice on this all of the time. Some final questions as a vote going on. So, uh, Ms. Lewis, I don't think you get away that easy. Uh, when uh, the Department of Defense, through existing authorities uh, and seeking new ones, has assumed an outside role in providing security assistance to foreign countries, providing foreign assistance is, and in my view uh, always should be, the purview of the Secretary of State and the State Department conferred by uh, diplomats in the service of our foreign policy. I want to ask you, will you use all means at your disposal to confirm to conduct oversight on U.S. security assistance for foreign countries and foreign persons, regardless of which U.S. agency is providing it? Yes. And if confirmed, we work closely with the committee to prevent any further loss uh, or duplication of state security assistance authorities? Absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, 
Uh, one last question. Uh, you fully support the Taiwan's Relations Act, is that, is that correct? Yes, sir. And U.S. support for Taiwan's self-defense? Absolutely. Do you commit to treating Taiwan the same as every other state in the arms process sale? Yes, sir, consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act. Thank you very much. Uh, Ambassador Liu, let me ask you, um, at this point, as the security uh, environment grows more precarious in Afghanistan, uh, what leverage, what uh, efforts can we realistically take to support members of civil society? Uh, Senator Shaheen just talked about Afghan women and girls, uh, and I echo that, but also civil society. And, and what, uh, what, uh, what measures can we take to uh, take care of those partners who worked for the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, SIPI, Internews, and IFAS? They don't qualify for special immigrant visas, but they created extraordinary service in our ultimate Absolutely. goals. Uh, Mr. Chairman, um, in my first job in the State Department, uh, I worked in the uh, American consulate in Peshawar, Pakistan. One of my jobs, I was the admin officer, was to support our staff of our embassy in Kabul, uh, local staff. And they had long since stopped working in the embassy. The embassy had been closed for three years at that point. Uh, but we maintained a commitment to our people. And that commitment went on for 12 years until we reopened our embassy. We paid their salaries. We took care of them. Um, it, it's critical that we take care of the people who have shown loyalty and service to us, whether that is our own employees, people who've been interpreters and translators for the military and the State Department, or it's uh, folks that have worked in civil society supporting our programs. These were dangerous jobs even then, and they're even more at risk today. Uh, I, I hear you on um, the fact that they would not qualify for special immigrant visas. I do think there is a discussion within the interagency and with the Congress about how to safeguard these people at risk. It's a broad category, and we're looking at the full range of possibilities. The U.S. Uh, refugee admissions process, humanitarian parole, uh, humanitarian emergency assistance. Um, I, I welcome, if you, sir, or your staff have ideas about how we can make sure we are showing loyalty uh, to those people who've risked their own safety and their lives to support our common goals, I, I think it's not something we're going to get done alone as an administration. It'll take the administration plus Congress and international partners uh, to safeguard all of these people. Well, I appreciate that. We do, and we will share them. Um, but, you know, these entities that are promoting the core values uh, to the uh, different uh, roles they play are important to be able to preserve, not only in this case, but send a global message that when you do this work, whatever it is in the world, however dangerous it is, that you, in fact, uh, will be backed up. And I think that that's incredibly important. One last question for you, Ambassador. Uh, I have been very involved in supporting labor rights in Bangladesh. Um, I appreciate the effort since the Rana Plaza disaster. But there's a lot of work that remains uh, to make sure uh, that made in Bangladesh uh, doesn't mean made in the blood of Bangladeshi workers. Do I have your commitment to press the Bangladeshi government to allow unions to register and function without repression? Yes, you do, sir. Okay. And then finally, um, 
Ms. Escobar, I don't want you to think nobody cares about what you're doing. Uh, we, we do a great deal. Uh, I think you have extraordinary uh, uh, experience in the development side of the role that you're going to play, and you even referenced it in your uh, remarks. And so I, I won't dwell on that, but I do want to say that part of what USAID is, uh, has to do with, particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean, is the democracy uh, side of it. And sometimes at AID, not under Samantha Power, but in the past I've feared that we have lost the democracy side of the USAID mission. Uh, when I see protests in Cuba, when I see what's happening in Haiti, uh, when I see what's happening in Nicaragua uh, and elsewhere, I see a tremendous uh, backsliding on the question of democratic governance uh, and human rights. Can you speak a little bit as to how you'll see your mission uh, at AID in that regard? Now, Senator, thank you for your question and for always speaking very forcefully uh, on behalf of democratic rights and accountability in the region. I do see good governance as a prerequisite to progress on everything else. Corruption is corrosive for many reasons, but in particular because it, um, it undermines citizens' beliefs that governments can deliver for them. USAID's efforts have focused on, the, you know, on supporting civil society, human rights defenders, free press. All of these efforts um, reinforce citizens' um, demand for democracy. And on the supply side, as you know, there are also great efforts on, uh, on just improving the rule of law and, uh, and making it more available. And if confirmed, I will double down on those efforts and also pursue other new and approaches that, um, um, that can address the recent backsliding that is very particular in key, in key countries that you mentioned. As I said to Administrator Power, I'm keen on this issue. And I have uh, both put in language support to help the agency as well as in the appropriations process. So we look forward to working with that. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, let me uh, thank all four of our nominees for their willingness to serve and continue to serve our country. And I, I thank your families. I, I wanted particularly uh, to acknowledge and thank Jessica Lewis for her extraordinary help to me and to our committee. Uh, you have the diplomatic skills to take on this new assignment. If you can handle the egos of the members of this committee, you can handle any challenge that you might confront in the State Department. So we wish you only the best. It's good to see uh, my former colleague, uh, Ken Salazar, before us. Um, uh, we always uh, enjoyed his company in the Senate and uh, look forward to his service uh, to our nation uh, in, in Mexico. Uh, I'm going to ask one question uh, to, to Mr. Salazar and, Mr., uh, and Ms. Escobar, and that is to deal with corruption. Uh, Mexico is a great neighbor of ours. They have a serious problem of protection of human rights, particularly journalists. Uh, they have a corruption issue. Our hemisphere, unfortunately, has a systemic uh, corruption issue in, in many democratic states. And uh, I know the president has identified corruption as a national uh, security uh, core interest. Uh, we have, in this committee, passed uh, additional resources to deal with corruption. I just really uh, want to underscore the importance of, of this subject in your portfolios. 
Uh, I had a chance to talk to Mr. Salazar uh, um, yesterday or the day before, and we had, a, I think, a good conversation on this subject. So, Ms. Escobar, if you could just share with us uh, your uh, strategies for how you're going to deal with countries that have free elections but have elected, uh, have not been able to deal with systemic corruption, uh, which has led to significant uh, erosion of human rights and stability in these nations. No, I, I, as I mentioned in, in my last comments, I do think good governance is a prerequisite for progress on, on everything else. Um, in the last quarter of the 20th century, Latin America actually saw the greatest gains in, in liberal democracy, but these gains were not accompanied with, uh, with the investments in human capital, physical capital, to really create a middle class. And now we have uh, you know, political and economic elites that remain entrenched. Corruption permeates everyday transactions. And, and unequal growth uh, have left citizens frustrated. And this has become a really fertile ground for authoritarian and populist leaders. So I think uh, that focusing on the ability of these states to deliver the goods and services, but also to support civil society to hold those governments accountable to deliver is, uh, is the, the kind of ingredients that we need to, to strengthen rule of law at a time that, uh, that, uh, that all the pressures on these economies uh, make them increasingly fragile. One of the areas that we really need to improve upon is to build capacity in our embassies in each of these countries to be able to identify the weaknesses of the countries in which they're representing the United States in and to be able to work with our different agencies as to how we can work with the country to make significant progress on anti-corruption issues. It seems to me that's one of the areas that should be a priority uh, of, of the position you've been nominated for. And just, again, we welcome your commitment to really work to make a major difference in our capacity in each of these countries. Yes, you have my commitment. And, and I think it's really beneficial that USAID has a presence and has had a presence in these countries for many years and can add that perspective uh, to, to regional embassies. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, that brings this nomination's hearing to a close. The record for the hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, January 29th, which is tomorrow. I'd urge members to get their questions in for the record to today. Uh, I would urge the nominees, uh, if you are in receipt of questions for the record, that you answer them fully and expeditiously so that the committee can consider your nominations before a business meeting. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.